to your children. I thank you for the coming of the Messiah, Yahushua. I ask you, Father, that you bless this broadcast. I ask that you bind and bound any demonic influence that will try to hinder it, O Father. I ask that you give this message to those that need it, Father. I ask that you remind us of your covenant that you made with Abraham, Isaac, and our father Yaakov. I pray that you bless us with understanding. I come with you with a humble heart, Father. I ask you to hear this message in the name of your gift, your love, the Messiah, Yahshua. Hallelujah. 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 Okay. Welcome again. Thank you for tuning in. The name of this broadcast is entitled Rise of the Black Messiah, Pawns and Rebels. This is part of a three-part series. You can listen to uh, part one on Blog Talk Radio under Signs and Wonders, or you can visit the Huanet website or HebrewWakeUp.com. Huanet.org is H-W-U-N-E-T dot O-R-G. That's H-W-U-N-E-T dot O-R-G. Okay? Okay, now, I would like to begin this broadcast with a quote. A quote from a man by the name of David Walker. Who was David Walker? David Walker was the author of a 76-page pamphlet. Now, this pamphlet was so dangerous that if you were caught with this pamphlet, you would be lynched, whipped, or imprisoned. The name of this pamphlet is called The Appeal to the Colored Citizens of the World. It was written in 1829. Okay. Now, I'm going to read a small portion of the pamphlet. Um, then I'm going to explain to you more about who David Walker is. And it reads, Show me a page of history, either sacred or profane, in which a verse can be found which maintains that the Egyptians heaped the insupportable insult upon the children of Jacob by telling them that they were not of the human family. End quote. Now, that was from David Walker, the True Rebel, 1829. Now, David Walker is going to be more explained as we progress through this broadcast. But understand that this man was extremely important to the freeing of the slave. But yet, we know nothing about this man. This man was deliberately kept out of the educational system of the United States of America. During the end of this broadcast, we will find out why. Okay, now, to get to the root of this broadcast, we have to begin with uh, a myth. And that myth is called The Curse of Ham. Now, I'm going to play this audio file, and then after I play this audio file, um, we are going to actually explain 
how all of this slavery and uh, corruption began. Okay, here we go. The mendacious chutzpah represented by this outrageous dissembling is truly audacious. Such a gambit can only be sustained before an audience almost totally ignorant of the relevant foundational rabbinic texts. The curse of Ham, as taught by the rabbis, is what Abraham Melamed rightly terms the locus classicus of Judaism's historic antipathy toward black people and the exegetical source of its racist teaching from the Amorim of Babylonia to Moses' Mammonides. The dogma that the black is a slave by nature is rabbinic in origin. Canaan is identified as a black man and blacks as an inferior people only in the Gemara, which is to say the latter part of the Talmud, the Midrash, and later writings of the rabbis. This invective, this racism, is not anywhere in the Bible concerning the black race. The rabbinic account of the malediction against Ham stipulates that Ham's son Canaan and all Canaan's issue are forever fated to suffer perpetual slavery and black skin without the possibility of their condition ever being ameliorated. It is this anti-Old Testament rabbinic gloss that influenced those 15th century Renaissance humanists who had crossed over into the forbidden territory of the Talmud, Midrash, and Kabbalah as part of a supposedly enlightened act. It is an irony of history that as a result of this supposedly progressive development, the abominable view of black people as a congenitally determined race of perpetual slaves became entrenched among the Western liberal intelligentsia for at least the next 300 years. Here's what Schorsch writes in his book, Jews and Blacks in the Early Modern World. Few Jewish thinkers understood Ham's curse to initiate his or her progeny's blackness. That is an out-and-out prevarication. The classic rabbinic texts hold that the punishment visited upon Ham was the transformation of his son Canaan and all Canaan's progeny into blacks. Rabbi Hiaya said, Ham and the dog copulated on the ark, therefore Ham came forth dark-skinned. That is the canonical rabbinic teaching of Orthodox Judaism. And Shorsh's book covers this up, and yet Shorsh's book has become the paradigmatic text for those in university and college-level training in this subject for, to refer to when they are seeking out information on this. Okay, now, to understand this broadcast, we have to take it to the root. We have to understand that all of this has a beginning. The usurpation of the Hebrews had an effect on this world. This so-called curse of Ham was used to create the world we see today. You see, it made Great Britain the power it is. It made the United States of America the power it is. It allowed these Amalekites to hide their seed in all the nations. It allowed the seed of Yaakov 
to be enslaved for hundreds of years. So let's uproot the cause of this deception. Let's see where it all began. And it reads, in 1452, Pope Nicholas V issued the papal bull Dom Diversus, granting Alfonso V the right to reduce Saracens, pagans, and any other unbelievers to hereditary slavery. This approval of slavery was reaffirmed and extended in the Romanus Pontifex Bull of 1455, also by Nicholas V. These papal bulls came to serve as a justification for the subsequent era of slave trade and European colonization. And this is from the Romanus Pontifex. And what does it read? Since we had formerly by other letters of our granted among other things free and ample faculties to the offer said King Alfonso to invade, search out, capture, vanquish, and subdue all Saracens and pagans whatsoever and other enemies of Christ whatsoever placed and the kingdoms, dukedoms, principalities, dominions, possessions, and all movable and immovable goods whatsoever held and possessed by them and to reduce their persons to perpetual slavery, unquote. And it reads, in 1493, Pope Alexander VI issued inter catira, stating one Christian nation did not have the right to establish dominion over lands previously dominated by another Christian nation, thus establishing the law of nations. Together, the Dom Diversus, the Romanus Pontifex, and the Inter Catira came to serve as a justification for the discovery doctrine and the age of imperialism. End quote. Okay, now, so what has the established religions and nations told us what this curse of Ham means? Now, what have they told us this curse of Ham means? And it reads, The curse of Ham is a possible misnomer for the curse of Canaan. The curse refers to Noah cursing Ham's offspring, Canaan. For Ham's own transgression against his father, according Genesis in the Hebrew Bible. The, ba- uh, the debate regarding upon whom the curse fell has raged for at least 2,000 years, as early as classical antiquity. Most commentators agree with the literal text of Genesis that it was Canaan who was cursed for the sin of his father Ham. Racial interpretations of the curse of Ham have been used to promote racial religious ideologies typically based in Abrahamic religions to justify the enslavement of black Africans. End quote. Okay. So now you can see that even they understand that there is a misinterpretation of this curse, but yet they continue to use it as an excuse to enslave black Africans. 
Now, I'm going to read to you the accounts that are in uh, Jubilees, the book of Jubilees. There's difference from Genesis. And uh, you'll see that this one is actually clear on who the curse fell on and what it actually meant. And see if you see any mention of black skin in this curse. Okay, um, I'm not, not in this curse, in this reading of uh, Jubilees. Okay, the book of Jubilees, and it reads, And he rejoiced and drank of this wine, and his children with joy. And it was evening, and he went into his tent. And being drunk, he lay down and slept, and was uncovered in his tent as he slept. And Ham saw Noah his father, and went forth and told his two brethren without. And Shem took his garment and arose, he and Japheth, and they placed the garment on their shoulders and went backwards and covered the shame of their father. And their faces were backwards. And Noah awoke from his sleep and knew all that his youngest son had done unto him, and he cursed his son, and said, quote, Cursed be Canaan, an enslaved servant shall he be unto his brethren. And blessed Shem, and said, Blessed be the Most High Yah of Shem. And Canaan shall be his servant. Yah shall enlarge Japheth, and Yah shall dwell in the dwellings of Shem. And Canaan shall be his servant. End quote. And Ham knew that his father had cursed his youngest son, and he was displeased that he had cursed his son. And he parted from his father, he and his sons with him. And this is his sons. It says, Cush and Mithram and Put and Canaan. And he built for himself a city, and he called its name after the name of his wife, Mi Ilat Tama Ahuk. Okay? Now, when you read this uh, book of Jubilees, it's quite different from the book of, um, uh, I'm sorry, from the Bible, the King James Version. The King James Version has a lot of, uh, it's like cryptic. You know what I'm saying? You can actually see that there's a lot of allegories in there. And with these allegories, it leads to different interpretations. So we got to be cautious when we start to read these books and understand that there are always hitting things added into this King James Version. But the question is, why? Who actually wrote this book? When was this book written? Okay. Now, this article states, and I quote, The debate regarding upon whom the curse fell has raised for at least two thousand years as early as classical antiquity okay end quote so 
When was the first written account of this deception? Well, you need to look no further than the Talmud. But before we look at this Talmud, I'm going to read another reference from a man by the name of Origen Adamantius. That's A-D-A-M-A-N-T-I-U-S. Or you can call him Origen of Alexandria. Now, understand, this man is regarded as one of the church fathers. Okay. Now, <clears throat> this is taken from Origen of Alexandria. Now, he lived in the year 1855 to 54 A.D. Okay, now, this is from a book called Homilies on Genesis 16.1, and it reads, According to the trustworthiness of Scripture, no Egyptian was free, for Pharaoh reduced the people to slavery to himself. Nor did he leave anyone free within the borders of the Egyptians, but freedom was taken away in the land of Egypt. And perhaps for this reason it is written, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Egypt, therefore, became the house of bondage, and what is more unfortunate, of voluntary bondage. Then he says, For the Egyptians are prone to a degraded life, I'm sorry, a degenerate life, and quickly sank to every slavery of the vices. Look at the origin of of the race, and you will discover that their father, Ham, who had laughed at his father's nakedness, deserved a judgment of this kind, that his son, Canaan, should be a servant to his brothers, in which case the condition of bondage would prove the wickedness of his conduct. Not without merit, therefore, does listen up the discolored the discolored posterity imitate the ignobility of the race the discolored posterity imitate the ignobility of the race okay now this word ignobility means to be common it means not to be of noble quality. Okay? So this church father is seeing himself above the Egyptians, right? Because he, if he's talking about ignobility, then now he, he figures, I'm noble. Now, this if this uh, church father sees himself above the Egyptians because they are discolored, then think, how did this mindset get in his head? Now, keep in mind, this is back in the 2nd century A.D., okay? This is almost 2,000 years ago. Now, understand, this uh, phrase, the discolored posterity, this is taken from his book called 
homilies on Genesis 16.1. Like I said, it was written in the 2nd century A.D. Now, this is very important to know. It's important so we can track down where the root of this deception is. Now, this church father, Origen of Alexandria, received his information from uh, the Greek Bible called the Septuagint. Now, keep in mind, this Septuagint was written 3rd century B.C. B.C. meaning before Christ. This was over 500 years prior in Alexandria, Egypt. The writers were 72 usurpers, and this book was written in 72 days, as we're told. Okay? Now, who tells us this account? This account is told to us by another church father by the name of Philo of Alexandria. Now, we are also told this account later influenced the creation of the book called the Babylonian Talmud. All right, now, here's a little background, and this is history. Um, first, we have the Seleucid Empire. This was created out of the leadership of Alexander the Great. Everybody knows who Alexander the Great is. Okay? Now, Alexander the Great was Greek. Okay? What he was doing, he was uprooting cultures. He was Hellenizing everything in its path. Okay? He was Hellenizing the Egyptians, the Persians, the Babylonians, and also those that dwelled in Jerusalem. Now, every nation, whether it was white or black, is being brought under one roof and one religion. Okay? They were becoming Hellenized. Okay, this is Hellenism happening. Okay, now, we have a man by the name of Ptolemy II Philadelphus ordering the creation of a book called the Septuagint. The Septuagint is a book that was written by 72 usurpers in 72 days. Okay. Now, they translated the book from Hebrews to Greek because he asked them to create this book. Remember, this is a Greek man. He goes, can you translate a book, this book, in these 72 usurpers in 72 days, okay? They translate from Hebrews to Greek, and he wanted it so it can be in the Greek tongue. So here's what we have. We have the first constructed Bible in the Greek tongue. And I say constructed because it was never one book before. It was many different books. It was stories, okay? Which were uh, told to us by the Levitical priesthood. Okay, now here we have, uh, we have to take a look at this, right? And um, this is going to, uh, what I'm trying to do is I'm going to make a point out of this. Okay, now, from um, history, we're told that the true translation was not completed until the year 132 B.C. Okay, now this point is important, and, it, and it's going to mean more as I go through this, okay, but we have another date that's important, 
And this date is 191 B.C. Now, in 191 B.C., we have an event that will change the fate of the Hebrews forever. Okay? Now, before we get into this, this event, uh, I will explain something called the Sanhedrin. Okay? The Sanhedrin is a group of 71 sages. Alright? Now, remember, we have the 70 usurpers in 72 days, but now we have 71 sages. So, where's the 72? Well, the 72nd individual here would be the high priest. Okay? But first, before we get into that, let's, te let's speak about the 71 sages. Alright? And what is the Sanhedrin? Okay? Now, the Sanhedrin, as it explains, this is from the Virtual Jewish Library, and it says, The ancient Jewish court system was called the Sanhedrin. The great Sanhedrin was the supreme religious body in the land of Israel during the time of the Holy Temple. There was also similar religious Sanhedrins in every town in the land of Israel, as well as a civil political uh, democratic Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin existed until the abolishment of the rabbinic patriarch, uh, patriot in about 425 CE. So that's 425 years after the death of Christ. It says, the earliest record of the Sanhedrin is by Josephus, who wrote of a political Sanhedrin convened by the Romans in 57 BCE. End quote. All right, now, keep this in mind. How are the Romans, okay, how are the Romans assembling a Sanhedrin in 57 B.C.? Now, I ask that question because the Romans are not of the Levitic, Levitic, uh, Levitical priesthood, right? Okay, now it says, um, and it continues, it says, Hellenistic Sources generally depict the Sanhedrin as a political and judicial council headed by the country's rulers. Tenactic sources describe the great Sanhedrin as a religious assembly of 71 sages who met in the chamber, in the chamber of hewn stones in the Temple of Jerusalem. End quote. Okay, now, here's the history of the Sanhedrin and how it came to power. All right, and it reads, it says, uh, the Sanhedrin as a body claimed power that lesser Jewish courts did not have. As such, they were the only ones who could try the king, extend the boundaries of the Temple of Jerusalem, and were the ones to whom all questions of law were finally put. Before 191 BC, the high priest acted as the ex officio head of the Sanhedrin. But in 191 B.C., when the Sanhedrin lost confidence in the high priest, the office of Nasi, N-A-S-I, was created. After the time of Hillel, the elder, the 1st century B.C. and early 1st century A.D., okay? After the time of Hillel, last 1st century B.C., early 1st century A.D., 
the Nasi was almost invariably a descendant of Hillel, the second highest ranking member of the Sanhedrin was called the Avbitdim, or head of the court, literally Bitdim, house of law, who presided over the Sanhedrin when it set as a criminal court. End quote. Okay, now there are a few things in this article that I would like to bring to your attention. All right. Now the first is this: we have a man named Hillel the Elder. Okay, who is this man, Hillel the Elder? And it reads: Hillel was born in Babylon, and according to the Igret at Rav Saria Gaum, a comprehensive history of the Composition of the Talmud from the 10th century CE. Hillel descended from the tribe of Benjamin on his father's side and from the family of David on his mother's side. Nothing definite, however, is known concerning his origin, nor is he anywhere called by his father's name, which may have been Gamlai. G-A-M-L-I-E. Gamlai. End quote. Okay, now, I seriously advise you to listen to a broadcast on whonet.org, H-W-U-N-E-T.org, called The Seed of Benjamin. Okay, it's called The Seed of Benjamin. Now, listen to this to understand why this is important. Why is it important to understand who the seed of Benjamin is? And how does it relate to what I just said? Okay, now, what you're going to notice is a pattern. You see, every time that the Hebrews experience drama, okay, the cause of this drama is always associated, or most times associated, with the seed of Benjamin. Now, keep in mind now, the Hebrew seed passes from the father, okay? Now, I stated this clearly in my first broadcast on this um, series called Rise of the Black Messiah, Know Your Enemy. Okay? Now, understanding, knowing our enemy is extremely important because this is how we can put the pieces back together and understand who we are and how to fight this enemy. Okay, now, I'm going to read Nasi. And what does it say? Uh, what is this word Nasi? Okay, remember, it says Nasi. Well, what is Nasi? And it says, um, Before 191 B.C., the high priest acted as the ex officio head of the Sanhedrin, but in 191 BC, when the Sanhedrin lost confidence in the high priest, the office of Nice was created. Okay, here's an article that will explain this. Now, what I think, we have these 71 sages. But we know that these people deal with 72, not 71. Either the high priest is either A, I mean either the 72nd individual that they need to complete this 72 demonic thing that they're doing, is either A, the high priest, or another being that has took in the place of the high priest. Because as they say, the Nicene, 
right? They said that the Sanhedrin lost confidence in the high priest. So now we have the office of Nicaea with only 71, but we need a 72. So is, is the is the 72nd Lucifer? Or, you know, when we look into that name, we understand what Lucifer means. Let's, let's use another name. Is the uh, 72nd position these demonic entities or the principality of the hour? We don't know. We don't know. Okay, but let me continue. All right. Now, here's an article that explains about the Sanhedrin. And it says, um, during the Second Commonwealth, 530 BCE to 70 CE, the Nasi was the highest ranking member and president of the Sanhedrin or assembly, including when it sat as a criminal court. The position was created in 191 BCE when the Sanhedrin lost confidence in the ability of the high priest to serve as its head. The Romans recognized the Nasi as patriarch of the Jews and regarded all Jews to pay him a tax for the upkeep of that office, which ranked highly in the Roman official hierarchy. End quote. Okay, now... As I'm reading this article, you notice how this year, 191 B.C., keeps coming up. Now, what happened in this year? But before I answer this question, before I answer these two questions, uh, what is 191 B.C., um, I have uh, a few other questions. First is, why is this important? And how does this relate to Rise of the Black Messiah, Pawns and Rebels? Okay, well, the first reason why this is important is because the root of the so-called curse of Canaan, curse of Ham, was used to place us in the state we are in. Our present state we are in right now. Okay? Now, we have to understand our past. To know where we are. Okay? And we have to know where we are to know where we are going. Okay? You see, the FBI, the FBI's creation of Pro, is an example of the effects of this lie. This is the after effects of this lot of the curse of Ham and the curse of Canaan. Okay? Coin 12 Pro is a creation from that lot. You see, this lot was created in order to stop the rise of the Black Messiah. Now, this goes beyond the 1960s J. Edgar Hoover. Okay? They want us to think about this started in J. Edgar Hoover in, in 1960. In the 1960s, this whole Black of the Messiah, Black of the, uh, the Rise of the Black Messiah thing. But what we have to keep in mind is the Sidi Yaakov has an old enemy. That serpent is at war with us, as it's stated in the book of Exodus. Okay? Now I'm going to read uh, the book's Exodus, and it says, and Yeshua discomforted Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. And Yahuwah said unto Moses, Write this for a memorial in a book, 
and rehearse it in the ears of Yahuwah, of Yeshua. For I will utterly put out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven, and Moses built an altar and called the name of it Yahuwah Nasi, Nasai. Actually, this um, word, N-I-S-S-I, you have Nasi, then we have Nisiai. I wonder if there's any connection. The high priest. Anyway, well, let me keep going. Yahuwah Nisai. Alright? Now, what does this mean? Yahuwah. We all know Yahuwah is um, the name of the Most High. Yahuwah, Ayah, Yahuwah, same, same individual, y'all know that now, right? Because when they say Lord, they mean the highest, right? But Yahuwah, Yahuwah, the highest, Yah, above all. My Yah is, my, my Ah, my Ah is Yah, Yahuwah. Okay, my, okay, let me get, let me get back to this. Now, it says Yahuwah is our protection, okay? Yahuwah, Nasiah. Now it says, they say that Nasiah uh, means flag or banner, but it actually means Yahuwah is our protection. Okay? And then it, it continues this. It says, For he said, Because Yahuwah hath sworn that Yahuwah will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. From generation to generation. He said, Yahuwah will have war. So, when we raise that flag, when we recognize that Yahuwah is our protection, then when these demonic beings see who they're up against, they're not up against just man. They're up against Yahuwah. But first, we have to know who we are to know where we're going. All right, now let me continue because I, I don't want to um, take too long about this because I have a lot to, to, to cover. Um. But you see that this is important, uh, all of this, because we have to recognize the blueprint of the enemy. We have to understand his modus operandi. Okay? His modus operandi is that he usurps. He usurps his prey. This serpent has become his prey. We can see this in the example of the year. 191 B.C. All these events of the year 191 B.C. will show to us the modus operandi of our enemy. Now, how does this relate to the rise of the Black Messiah, pawns and rebels? Well, because the core of the Hermetic myth was planted by the seed of deception. And Within this seed was the lies placed in a book called the Babylonian Talmud. And this book was pushed by the Sanhedrin. Okay? The Sanhedrin was in their control, not in our control. The Sanhedrin was created under the Greek Empire. It was controlled by the Roman Empire, and it was filled with 71 demonic Kabbalah, Kabbalah reading imposters called sages. The imp 
imposters use this office of power to totally destroy the true Hebrews of the city Yaakov and drive them out of their own land into the four corners of this earth. Now, I want you to listen to uh, Genesis uh, 3.15, okay? And this is Ayah, and he's speaking to the serpent, okay? And it reads, And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shall bruise his heel. Now, I want to make a comment on this word, enmity. I was, um, the, my last broadcast, I was mispronouncing it. And, um, uh, a very kind sister wrote me and she explained to me and she gave me some constructive criticism. And I thank her for that. And I also want to make a statement and tell everybody, look, I'm not going to pronounce everything correctly and, uh, have patience with me. But, um, you know, it's part of the curses. <laughs> but anyway, I'm going to read it again. And uh, I just want to say uh, the proper way of saying it is enmity. Okay? And if there's something um, that you don't understand, I ask you to please just email me and then, you know, we can uh, correct these things. Okay, now I'm going to read it again. It says, And I will put enmity between thee and the woman and between thy seed and her seed it shall bruise thy head and thou shall bruise his heel okay now that this right here is our enemy okay we have an old enemy an old enemy okay now this next section, we're going to go over the Levites. And um, we're going to figure out how the Levites were taken over. Okay? Now, here is the, uh, the core, okay? The root of the deception. The root of the deception, um, and this is how the uh, curse of Ham made its way into scriptures. Okay. This this incident that I'm going to speak of in 191 BC. This is how the seed of Yaakov are taken out. Okay. And how the uh, seat of Aaron, whom was of the tribe of Levi, is usurped. And this is Way back in the year 191 B.C., before Christianity, almost 500 years before Christianity. Okay, now I just wanted to set that up, okay? Now, um, I'm going to read something here, and this is taken off of Wiki, Wikipedia. Um, this is a section where they speak about the, pri the, the uh, high priest, okay? And uh, it starts with Ananias Third. And it reads, Ananias III was a Jewish high priest, the son of Simeon II. 
He is described as a pious man who, unlike the Hellenizers, fought for Judaism. Seleucus Philopator defied all the expenses connected with the sanctuary and was friendly to the Jews. According to Second Maccabees, a traitorous official of the temple, however, Simeon, uh, Simeon the Benjamite, or Simon the Benjamite, induced the king through his official, and the name is Helodorus, H-E-L-I-O, Doris, Helodorus, to undertake the plunder of the temple treasures. The attempt was successful, and the Syrian court never forgave the high priest for its miscarriage, unquote. Okay, now, now what happened was, Seleucus Philopator was in need of money because the wars that were raging between Greek and Rome at the time. Now understand, Rome is now coming over to usurp Greece. Okay, because Greece was usurping, now here comes Rome. Now this is the scene of the serpent, they're just usurpers. No matter, you know, this is what they do. But now Rome is coming to usurp Greece. Now, what happens is Seleucus, or I'm sorry, Seleucus, right? Because this is the Seleucus Empire. He is um, told that the Hebrews have a vast amount of wealth in their temple. Right? And somebody tells him that they have a vast amount of wealth in their temple. This is told to him by a man named Simon the Benjamite. Simon the Benjamite speaks to Helodorus, okay? And who's Helodorus? Helodorus is an elite Greek politician. He's extremely close to the king. Okay, he has the king's ear. So Simon the Benjamite speaks to Helodorus. Then Helodorus then goes to the temple to collect all of this gold he heard about. Okay, But what happens is he's, act, he, he's stopped by the Most High. Then we read that Helodorus' heart is turned towards the king. Seleucus follow Pactor. Okay, Philopator. Now, then he becomes the king of the Greeks. How does this happen? Well, he kills the king, and now he becomes the king of the Seleucid Empire. Now, we can find all this written in the account in Daniel chapter 11, book 20. All right? Uh, Daniel chapter 11, I'm sorry. Daniel chapter 11, verse 20. Now, I'm going to read that to you, and you're going to see it as I explain it. Okay, now I just wanted to set that up. Now, remember, we have Seleucid, and we have Helodorus. We have a usurpation of the kingdom. And what does it say? It says, Then shall stand up in his estate a raiser of taxes in the glory of the kingdom. Now, who's raising taxes? Who needs money? The Seleucid Empire, right? Then it says, but within a few days he shall be destroyed, 
neither in anger nor in battle. Right? Who's being destroyed? This uh, razor of taxes. Right? And then it says, um, but uh, wait a minute now. But before I do that, I'm going to uh, read something. I want to read, uh, basically, I'm going to keep reading uh, from Wikipedia. Because what I'm going to do is I'm going to match Daniel 11.20 with this. And it says, uh, okay, and it says, um, around, uh, okay, yeah, but this is actually going to speak about how uh, Halodorus is actually stopped. All right, because it says, then shall stand up in his estate a razor of taxes and the glory of the kingdom, but within uh, a few days he shall be destroyed, neither in anger nor in battle. And then it says, around uh, 178 BC, Seleucus sent Halodorus to Jerusalem to collect money to pay the Romans. This is mentioned in uh, now. This is mentioned in Daniel 11:20. Says he will send out a tax collector to maintain the royal splendor. End quote. Um, you know, you know they they be adding stuff in anyway. But it says in Second Maccabees 3:21 to 20, it says reports that. Helodorus entered the temple in Jerusalem in order to take its treasure, but was returned back by three forms of God. They say God, but we know it's Yah. It says, On his return, he killed the king and seized the throne for himself, but it was not, uh, it was not long before Antigua, Antichus, okay, Antichus, the brother of the late king, with the help of the uh, Paragamun, monarch, and Uminisi II recovered it. Okay, now what they're speaking of is this guy kills the king, and then he's killed by the brother of the king. Okay, so basically what, we ha what we're seeing is a usurper being usurped. Now, in Daniel 11.21, it says, and, and in his estate shall stand up a vile person, to whom they shall not give the honor of the kingdom, but he shall come in peaceably and obtain the kingdom by flatteries. Now, what is this saying? Okay? Now, understand this now. We were always taught that this meant that Satan, okay, was coming back. We were taught that this verse meant that this was Satan coming back in, in, in the last days. Okay? And we say this is in, in a match with the book of Revelations. Okay, because we always, we always relate to Daniel 21 with Satan coming back. Well, at least this is what I was taught. I don't know about everybody. This is what I thought. Okay? I don't want to speak for everybody else. Now, but I want, I want you to listen to what this is referring to. Now, keep in mind, we are speaking of a full takeover of the temple of the Levites. Okay? Now, we understand, the Levites are the representatives of the Most High. If this has happened, don't you think somewhere in the Scriptures will talk about it? Some prophecies in Scripture would talk about the takeover of the Sidi Yaakov. Okay, and the Sidi Yaakov, of course, is his son Levi, the Levitical priest. Where would it say that in prophecy? Right here in Daniel 11.21, and it reads, 
and in his estate shall stand up a vile person to whom they shall not give the honor of the kingdom, but he shall come in peaceably and obtain the kingdom by flatteries. Now, first you have to ask the question. When Helodorus killed Seleucus Philopator, did he do it peacefully or was there violence involved? So now we have to ask, well, which kingdom are they speaking of? Which kingdom were they speaking of? Was it the high priest position which watched over the children of Yaakov? Or is this speaking of the Seleucus, the Seleucus uh, Empire? Well, let's see. And then it reads, it says, uh, Jason became high priest in 175 BCE after a after the accession of Antichas and Phenes to the throne of the Seleucid Empire. In an ongoing dispute between Onias III and Simon the Benjamite, Jason offered to pay Antichas in order to be confirmed as the new high priest in Jerusalem. Flattery. In order to pay the new high priest in Jerusalem. Okay? And Teochus accepted the offer and furthered and further allowed Jason to build a gymnasium in Jerusalem and create a Greek style polis named after the king. Antiochus which uh it says Antiochus with the creation of the uh Antioch uh, Jason abandoned the ordinances given under Antichius III, which defined the polity, the polity of the Judeans according to the Torah. End quote. Okay, now uh, let's not overlook what I just read. Okay, and I'm going to bring a section out. It says Jason offered to pay Antichius in order to be confirmed as the new high priest in Jerusalem. Okay, remember he offered to pay him. And then Daniel eleven twenty one it says, And and in his estate shall stand up a vile person to whom they shall not give the honor of the king, but he shall come in peaceably and obtain the kingdom by flatteries. Okay? He should ain't obtain the kingdom by flatteries. Alright? Now and it reads, it says <clears throat> Uh, Jason's time as high priest was brought to an abrupt end in 172 BCE, okay, uh, when he sent, it says, uh, Menelaus, the brother of Simon the Benjamite, to deliver money to Antichius. Menelaus took his opportunity to outbid Jason for the priesthood, resulting in Antichius confirming Menelaus as the high priest. Jason fled to Jerusalem and found refuge in the land of the Ammonites. Unquote. Alright, now, think about this. The, Levi the Levites, right, are the holders of the seed of Moses. The Levites are the holders of the seed of Moses. Ananias III was usurped by his vile brother Jason. Jason was removed, okay, I'm sorry, but Jason, he removed his brother, because Ananias and Jason are brothers. Jason removed his brother, Ananias III, 
How? By paying the money-hungry Greeks who need money for taxes. There's a money-hungry, right? He pays the Greeks, okay? Then, what happens to Jason? Jason is usurped by the brother of Simon the Benjamite. And who's his brother? Menelaus. Menelaus, the brother of Simon the Benjamite, usurps Jason. Now we have Menelaus, the seed of the Benjamite, sitting in the seat of Aaron, the seat of Levi. Now this seat is only supposed to be obtained by the Levitical priesthood. Okay? The Levitical priesthood. That's it. Nobody else. Now I'm going to read something else. And it reads, it says, When Antichius IV, Ephesians, became king, Anias III was ob obliged to yield to his own brother Jason. According to Josephus, Jason became high priest after the death of Anias. And then it says, according to 2 Maccabeus 26, Menelaus was not an Aaronite, but a brother of Simon, uh, ben uh, Simon mentioned above, and hence a Benjamite, end quote. All right, now, I just read something, but I want to bring something to your attention. And I'm going to read another sentence. It says, according to Josephus, Jason became high priest after the death of Ananias. Now, if you read that and, and you've been following along, you say, well, this is a little bit confusing because now if Jason came, uh, according to Josephus, Jason became high priest after the death of Ananias. Well, we have to understand that, no, what happened was Ananias, Jason didn't come, didn't kill Ananias. Ananias lived. Okay, who became priest after the death of Ananias? If anybody, it was Menelaus, the Benjamite. So now we have a conflicting here, right? Now, why is this important? Because we have to look at Daniel eleven twenty one. Okay, now this is implying that you know Jason was the one that was doing the flattery. Okay. So now we're going to clear this up. Now, what does it continue to read in the uh, in 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 this chapter? It says, "When now this is the history." It says, "When Menelaus purloined some vessels from the temple to carry favor with the Seleucid Syrian nobles, Ananias accused him publicly and then fled to the asylum of Dalphane near Antioch, where Menelaus, aided by the loyal government, and Dronesius had him secretly assassinated in defiance of justice and of his oath. The murdered priest was deeply mourned by both Hebrews and Greeks, and the king also on his return wept for him and Sentis and Dronicus to a well-merited death. Unquote. Okay? Now what this is saying is that Menelaus, the one that usurped Jason, okay, Menelaus had Ananias III secretly assassinated. He was killed by Menelaus the Benjamite, not his brother Jason, as Josephus deceptively implied. Now, the million-dollar question is this. Was Josephus of the seed of Yaakov, or was he one of these imposters? Was he a usurper? Was he a seed of the usurper? 
Now we have to be re- we have to be very alert to this deception. We have to understand who wrote the books. Okay. Now, hang in there. Okay, hang in there with me because all this has a purpose. Now, this is very important to rise of the Black Messiah, pawns and rebels. Now, let's break this down. Okay, I'm going to break this down. Ananias was the last legitimate high priest of the house of Zadok, which is one of the lines of Aaron. Okay? This is one of the lines of Aaron, the Levite. Okay, it's like a, he's a son of Aaron. Ananias has a son named Ananias the Fourth. Okay, now Ananias has a son. His son is named Ananias the Fourth. His son was supposed to take over his over the seat of his father. Because it goes from father to son, from father to son, from father to son. Okay, this is how we keep it in the Levitical precept. Because it's, it's the seat of Levi. Okay? But what happens? Menelaus, the Benjamite, okay, he took the seat over for the Greeks. Why? Because they knew there was money in there. They didn't care about the, the actual... Um, the, the 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 religion, if you want to use that word of, of it, they they wanted it for the money, okay, and the power, the seat of control, power of people, right? You control the religion, you control the nation, okay. Now, once Menelaus was killed, Ananias thought that he would be restored to his proper position. Now, keep this in mind. All of this created what is known as the Hasmonean Rebellion. All of this that's going on leads us to the Hasmonean Rebellion. And this rebellion is led by Judas Maccabeus. This is why I call myself Dawid Yaakov Maccabeus after this incident. Because I want people to go back there and understand that this is a very important incident that's happening here. This is the takeover of the seat of the, seat of the high priest position. Okay? Now, what happened? When uh, Ananias the fourth was okay was supposed to be placed back into the high priest position. Um, another priest comes into play, and who is this priest? He wasn't a priest yet, but who is this person? This person's name is Alicimos. Alicimos. His his name is spelled A L C I M U S. Alicimos. Now he takes the seat. Okay. Alicimos was of the tribe of Levi, so he was rightfully of the tribe of Levi, but he was a Hellenized pawn. This man was a pawn. Basically, he he just sold out. But since he was of the line of, of Aaron, since he was a Hebrew, everybody accepted him because they thought that he was going to set everything right. He had everybody on his side. But what they didn't know, he was actually a pawn of the usurpers, and he actually worked to destroy the Hasmoneans. Because they had this rebellion going on. So they got this guy, put him in, in charge, and now he's trying to destroy Hasmoneans, and eventually Judas Maccabeus is killed. Okay? Now, so what happens to Ananias the Fourth? Ananias the Fourth, the son of Ananias the Second, of, uh, of Ananias the Third. What happens is, the son of Ananias the fourth 
he fled to Egypt. Now we have a, Le a Levitical priest going to Egypt. And what does he do? He builds a temple in Egypt. Now why is this important? Well, it's important because we have these names like Ale like Alexand like uh, origin of Alexandria. Remember? The church father, origin of Alexandria. And we have Philo of Alexandria. Clemente of Alexandria. Why? Because of this temple that was built in Egypt. There's another religion coming on here. A new philosophy happening. And these church fathers are gravitating towards this. And when you ever hear the name Origin of Alexandria, Philo of Alexandria, Clement of Alexandria, there was a school that was going on out there. And this all ties in with uh, Pythagoras and Plato, the occult, Hellenization. Okay? Now, due to time, we can't go any deeper, but I am going to mention another special individual that came on the scene, and his name is a teacher of righteousness. Now, this individual is the one that set the temple right. Okay? He set it right. But what happened? Now, he was there for six years. Then he is taken out by another usurper, another Hellenized usurper, who is actually of the Hashemonian line. But they don't actually name him here, so there's like confusing on who it really was. But his name was called the Wicked Priest. Now, after this, we read in history that the Edomites come in, also and take over the line. They do it through King Herod. Okay, because understand, Herod was Edomite, Esau, Esau. Now, this is a Hebrew, all right, because it was the seed of Isaac, you know, Jason, uh, um, Jacob, and Isaac, all right. So now we have uh, the line of uh, Edomite, which is Herod. Now, what they do, they actually totally take over the seed. Now, when they take over the seat, what do they create? They create a new uh, type of religious hierarchy, right? But this uh, is the they're called the, the Sadducees. Okay, now we have the Sadducees sitting in the seat of Moses. Okay, now when we read Matthew twenty-three, this is what Yahushua is re referring to. All right, and it says. Ye serpents, ye generation of vipers, how can you escape the damnation of hell? Wherefore, before I send unto you prophets and wise men and scribes, and some of them ye shall kill and crucify, and some of them shall ye scorn in the synagogues and persecute them for, um, from city to city, that upon you may come all the righteous blood shed upon the earth from the blood of righteous Abel into the blood of of Zacharias, son of Barachias, whom you slew between the temple and the altar. Now, keep in mind, in 191 BC, we get the incident with Ananias III being usurped. Then we have the creation of the Sanhedrin. We have a new book called the Septuagint. Okay? And then we have the Greeks taking over the land of Jerusalem. And then we get something else happening around the 2nd century AD. We have a new office being created, 
called the rabbi. Okay? Now, I want you to, I'm going to read something to you about what the rabbi means. Now, understand, this is all has a lot to do with the rise of the black messiah, pawns, and rebels. Okay? Now, let me read this to you. Uh, rabbi is not an occupation found in the Torah and ancient generations did not employ related titles such as Rabban, Rabbi, or Rab to describe either the Babylonian sages or the sages in Israel. The titles Rabin and Rabbi are first mentioned in the Mishnah uh, 200 CE. Okay? And then it says, the term was first used for Rabin Gamliel, the elder, Rabin Simeon, his son, and Rabin Johan ben Zakai, all of whom were patriarchs or presidents of the Sanhedrin. A Greek transliteration of the word Harb. Harbi is found in the books of Matthew, Mark, and John in the New Testament, which it is used in reference to scribes and Pharisees. End quote. Okay, now, as I'm reading this, I want you to notice this name, Gamaliel the Elder. Now, listen to what it states. And it reads, Gamaliel the Elder was a leading authority to the Sanhedrin in the mid-first century CE. He was the grandson of the great Jewish teacher, Hel-El, the Elder, end quote. Okay, now, remember, Hel-El, the Elder, was a Benjamite, right? Hel-El, the Elder, was a Benjamite. Now we have this new office, not new office, new title uh, called rabbi. Okay. Now, are you starting to see a pattern here with the, with the Benjamites? It's like they're trying to tell us something with this, right? Like I said, go back to the seed of Benjamin to read to really go through that and understand um, the the uh, the whole teaching behind that. The seed of Benjamin. One of my previous uh, um, broadcasts, you can listen to the archives, or you can go to whonet.org, H-W-U-N-E-T dot org, okay? Um, now, okay, now, I went through this long explanation for two reasons. One, to show you the true root of the curse of Ham, and two, to give you a look at how this pattern of usurpation has been going on for the past 2,000 years, even more. Okay? Um, now, if we are the seed of Yaakov, then we should be wise about this pattern of the enemy, the pattern of our enemy. Okay? Uh, now, what does the Babylonian Talmud say about the curse of Ham? We're going to get into the Babylonian Talmud. Huh? 
Now, what does it say? It says, uh, the Talmud, it says, the Torah assigns no racial characteristics of ranking to Ham. Actually, no, this isn't the Talmud. This is, uh, I'm getting into Talmud, but this is an, uh, an explanation about the Talmud. I'm going to read the Talmud later so we can actually see it from their own writings, what it says. Okay, let me, re let me start again. It says, the Torah assigns no racial characteristics or rank, a ranking to Hebrew. Moses married a Cushite, one of the reputed descendants of Ham, according to the book of Numbers, chapter 12. Uh, despite this, a number of early Jewish writers have interpreted the biblical narrative of Ham in a racial way. The Babylonian Talmud, Sanhedrin 108b states, quote, Our rabbis taught three copulated in the ark, and they were all punished. And it says the dog, the raven, and Ham. The dog was doomed to, to be tied. The raven expectorates his seed into his mate's mouth, and Ham was smitten in his skin. Talmud uh, Bavlil, B-A-V-L-E, Bavel Sanhedrin 108b, uh, the nature of Ham's smitten skin is unexplained, but later commentaries describe this as a darkening of skin. A later note to the text states that the smitten skin referred to the blackness of descendants, and a later comment by Rabbi, Rabbis in the uh, Bereshit, Rabha, asserts that Ham himself emerged from the Ark black-skinned. And then it says, uh, oh, the Zora states that Ham's son, Canaan, darkened the face the faces of mankind. <laughs> I'm just saying that Talmud says, okay? Now, um, let me see. Okay, now, <clears throat> what I'm going to do, I'm actually going to read from the Babylonian Talmud. This is called Tractate Sanhedrin. And I'm going to put a, you're going to have, I have a link of this on the website, and I have the URL pointing to the actual uh, HTML file, which is referencing the Talmud. So you can see that I'm not making this up. And it says, uh, Folio 70A. Alright? Now this comes from the rabbi. And it says, uh, Ubar, the Gam, uh, Gam, uh, sorry, uh, Ubar, the Galilean, gave the following exposition. The letter Wall, W-A-W, 40 occurs 13 times in the passage dwelling with wine. And Noah began to be an husbandman, and he planted a vineyard, and he drank of the wine and was drunken, and he was uncovered within his tent. Then it says, And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brethren without. And Shem, the, and Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it upon their shoulders, and went backward and covered the nakedness of their father. And their faces were backward, and they saw not their father's nakedness. And Noah awoke from his wine, and knew what his younger son had done unto him. Okay, now, uh, commentary, uh, 
on Genesis 9, and this is what it says. It says, uh, it goes, uh, quote, with respect to these last verses, Rab and Samuel differ. One maintains that he castrated him, whilst the other says that he sexually abused him. He who maintains uh, that he castrated him reasons thus. Since he cursed him by his fourth son, he must have urged him with respect to a fourth son. But he who says that he sexually abused him draws an analogy between he uh, between and he saw written twice. Here it is written, And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father, whilst elsewhere it is written, And when uh, Sisham, the son of Hamor, saw her, he took her and lay with her and defiled her. <laughs> now, on the view that he emasculated him, it is right that he cursed him by his fourth son, but on the view that he abused him, why did he curse his fourth son? He should have cursed him himself, question. Both indignities were per perpetuated. Okay, now, where are they getting this castration and uh, sexual abuse? I mean, this is, they're adding stuff to this, right? And this is what the uh, the, the Catholic Church is referring to when they put us in slavery is these Talmudic texts. Okay, now, let's read another one. This is uh, Tractate Sanhedrin, and this is Folio 108a. And it reads, it says, uh, Our rabbis taught three copulated in the ark, and they were all punished, the dog, the raven, and ham. The dog was doomed to be tied. The raven expectorates his seed into his mate's mouth, and ham was smitten in his skin. Okay, now, this, uh, when they talk about smitten in the skin, they have a reference, okay? To clarify, they said, well, let's, let's clarify what it means. And it goes, i.e., uh, it says, from, from him, from ham, it says, from him descended Cush, the Negro, <laughs> for, it is, uh, the Negro who is black skinned. Now, we see that, uh, the Talmud, okay, the Talmud came up with this whole black skin and this whole homosexuality relationships, uh, this whole homosexuality sodomizing thing comes from uh, Genesis 9. It was the rabbis that were giving their commentary. This is their opinion. But who is who are the rabbis? These are the usurpers. You see how it's coming together now. The rabbis are the ones that usurped it, and they're, now they're giving the interpretation of Ham, because they know they know that the ones that they took over were of color, but they're not of color. So they got to make sure that we are the enemy, so we go into slavery, and then they use these fools called Christians that push it and promote it and keep us there for 400 years. Now, there's more. We're going to read Genesis. Uh, this is something from Gen Rabbah 37. It says, by Japheth, 
Gomor and Magog, Africa is met, and by Turus, Persia, Genesis Rabbah 37. And it reads, The sexes of both men and the lower animals were meant to be separate in the ark during the deluge. This is clear from the way in which they entered the ark. First Noah and his three sons went in, and then their wives separate, Genesis 7, 7. But when they came out of the ark after the flood, God commanded Noah, Go out of the ark, thou and thy wives, thy sons and thy their wives, Genesis 8.16. Thus putting the sexes together again, Ham among the human beings and the dog among the lower animals. This regarded this injunction and did not separate from the opposite sex in the ark. And it reads, the dog received a certain punishment, and Ham became a black man. Just as when a man has the audacity to coin the king's currency in the king's own palace, he, uh, his face is blackened as a punishment, and his issue is declared counterfeit. G.E.N. Rabbah 3.7. End quote. Now, let's read that again. It says, Ham became a black man, just as when a man has the audacity to coin the king's currency in the king's own palace, his face is blackened as punishment, and his issue is declared counterfeit. Okay, now, when we combine this Babylonian Talmud and its influence on the church father, a.k.a. origin of Alexandria, or origin of Adamanius, where his name is, you know, these church fathers, okay? And then when we look at the takeover of the high priest seat of Levi, the, the, the seat of Moses, Levi, and then we combine the creation of the Sanhedrin. And then the creation of the title rabbi, which are the ones that are giving us all this information here. You know what I'm saying? Then what happens? We begin to unveil the true origins of the curse of Ham. The curse of Canaan. The myth that put us into bondage for 400 years. You know what I'm saying? You see, we see the influence on Pope Nicholas V and the greed of the kings of Portugal. We see how they created this false teaching to justify their continued genocide of the people of color. The curse of Canaan is a lie. A lie created by the overseers of the Sanhedrin. A lie promoted by the Catholic Church. A lie used to justify the Europeans' continued exploitation over anything non-European. Now, we have to look at the players in this lie. And to do this, we have to start at the beginning. The seed of the serpent in the beginning. The Amalekites are the first of the nations. The Amalekites attached themselves 
to Benjamin through Saul. They attached themselves to the Greeks through Yafet. They attached themselves to Esau through Amalek. And Edom made himself the seed of Yaakov. Why does he make himself the seed of Yaakov? Because he thought Yaakov stole his blessing. So he said, I'm going to take it back. But when he took it back, he was already mixing himself in with the Amalekites. He was already making a league with them. This is King Herod. This is Herod. Learn this, people. It's very important to understand. You're getting a lot of this stuff wrong because you do not study history. Now, what happens when when uh, King Herod takes over? What happens when when he comes um, 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 through, right? What happens? The seed of Jacob turns from black to white. It comes from Hebrew to Jew. From Levite. To rabbi. Scriptures, scriptures turn from the Talmud. Right? Then they go to... Uh, I mean, the scriptures are turned into the Talmud. And then we have the laws of Moses becoming the Sanhedrin. And then all of these lies now are being portrayed as truth. And he did all this by usurping the seed of Yaakov. Now, look at this planet. Look at this planet. Look at the people that are portraying themselves as the rightful heirs of the Most High, the Catholic Church, the Protestants, the Jews. This is supposed to be the Most High. Ask yourself this question. Are these people a true representation of the creator of the heaven and the universe? Does this serpent express love for the Most High, Ayah? Of course not. Okay? Of course not. Now, I needed to go over this to lay the foundation for the next topic. This topic revolves around a man that struck fear in the heart of every slave master in the South. This man is the epitome. Oh, make sure I, I pronounce that right. The epitome of the Black Messiah. This man is no other than Nat Turner. Nat Turner's action changed the momentum of, of the free slave movement. But he changed this momentum not in a positive way. Who did change the momentum in a positive way? Well, a man by the name of David Walker. David Walker was a true liberator. Nat Turner was the false liberator. Now, this will become clear later on in this broadcast. I'm going to explain who David Walker is, but I want to explain my last statement there. Now, Nat Turner rebelled. And for a brief moment, everybody was like, yes, finally, we are doing something about this slavery. Okay? But who benefited from that? And was this of the Most High? Now, we're going to find this out later. 
But first, what I'm going to do is I'm going to read about uh, David Walker. And um, but I'm going to explain now who who was David Walker. Okay. Um, David Walker was a abolitionist. Okay. He was a abolitionist. Now he wrote a document, and his document was tailored after the Declaration of Independence, and he did it to actually show the hypocrisy of the Declaration of Independence. Now this document is called the Appeal to the Colored Citizens of the World. Now I'm going to have a link to this on whoanet.org, so you can actually download it and read the whole document. It's like 76 pages. Very important to read this. This document was so powerful. That if a black man or woman had one, they would be killed on the spot. They'd be lynched. Okay, lynched just like they did uh, Umar Gaddafi's son a few days ago. Okay, just like they killed Gaddafi a few days ago. It's the same people, same serpents, same spirit. Let me get back to this document. This document inspired. The true abolition, uh, abolishment movement. Men like William Lloyd Garrison, a journalist. Okay? Now, this man, <clears throat> there's, you know, at the, this is a white man, but I want to give him some credit. Now, we don't know um, how much of an ally he was, but he did bring out a lot of this, this, uh, this document, okay. Now he quit his job. Um, no, he 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 actually publicly uh, quit and denounced that deceptive uh, agency called the American Colonization Society. You remember the ones that were um, sending the the, uh, the the slaves to Liberia in my last broadcast, and when they went there, they went to liberate the country, and we find out that it was actually being run by Masons under free um Prince Hall's Black Liberation Movement. You know, the American Colonization Society always had a plan, not to free the black man, but to make themselves rich. Okay? Now what he did was after the death of, of uh what what William Lloyd Garrison did was after the death of David Walker, he published a weekly newspaper called The Liberator. Now this paper was in print from eighteen thirty to 1865. Now, 1830 is important because David Walker died in 1830. So now you have the beginning of the Liberator, 1830 to 1865. And what happened? What is 1865? That's when the slaves became free. Okay. So now we have a connection here, right? Now, the main purpose of the Liberator was to end slavery. Okay. Now. What did uh, what William Garrison did was he replaced uh, weekly discussions of David Walker's uh, David Walker's appeal in the paper. Now, what did this do? This inspired people like Frederick Douglass. Okay, and what did Frederick Frederick Douglass do? He was a, a champion for the rights of the slaves. Now, there's a speech that. Uh, Frederick Douglass does it's called the meaning of the 4th of July for the Negro David Walker 
was freeing the slaves through the court systems. Okay? And he was doing this by speaking of the hypocrisy of the Declaration of Independence. Now, he publicly called founding father Thomas Jefferson a hypocrite. Okay? He also challenged the black masons. He said, let's really free these slaves. Okay? Now, we are told that um, we're supposed to look at people like Booker T. Washington in a positive light and uh, the Prince Hall, Hall Masons in a, in a positive light because they're the ones that should be responsible for freeing the enslaved people, the people of color. But we never hear about David Walker. See, we know more about Nat Turner than we do about David Walker. Now, what I'm going to do is I'm going to read just the opening of the appeal to the colored citizens of the world. Okay? Now, after I read this, you're going to see why the schools never tell us about him. Okay? It's very powerful. Now, <clears throat> this is what the, uh, the appeal to the colored citizens of the world is called preamble. Okay? Preamble. And it says, we, you know, it goes, uh, quote, my dearly beloved brethren, the fellow citizens, having traveled over a considerable portion of the United States and having in the course of my travels taken the most accurate observation of things as they exist, the result of my observation has warranted the full and unshaken conviction that we, colored people of the United States, are the most degraded, wretched, and abject set of beings that ever lived since the world began. And I pray, Yah, that none like us ever may live again until time shall be no more. They tell us that the Israelites in Egypt, the Helots in Sparta, and of the Roman slaves, which last were made up from almost every nation under heaven, whose sufferings under those ancient and heathen nations were in comparison with ours. Under this enlightened and Christian nation, no more than a cipher or, in other words, those heathen nations of antiquities had but little more among them and than the name and form of slavery. While wretchedness and endless miseries were reserved, apparently in a fael to be poured out upon our fathers, ourselves, and our children by Christian Americans. End quote. And it continues. The cause, my brethren, which produce our wretchedness and misery are so very numerous and exaggerating that I believe the pen only of Josephus or of Plutarch can well enumerate and explain them. Upon subjects then of such incomprehensible with slaveholders or tyrants who acquire their daily bread by the blood and sweat of their more ignorant brethren, and not a few of those two who are to ignore, to see, and inch beyond their nose, will rise up and call me cursed ye. The jealous ones among us will perhaps use more abject subtlety by affirming that this work is not worth pursuing. 
that we are well situated and there is no use in trying to better our condition for we cannot, end quote. And it continues. I will ask one question here. Can one condition be any worse question? Can it be more mean and abject question? If there are any changes, will they not be for the better through they may appear for the worse at first question? Can they get us any lower question? Where can they get us? Question. They are afraid to treat us worse. For they know well the day that they do, they are gone. But against all accusations, which may or can be preferred against me, I appeal to heaven for my motives in writing who knows that my object is, if possible, to awaken in the breast of my affliction, degraded and slumbered brethren, a spirit of antiquity in investigation respecting our miseries and wretchedness in this republic land of liberty. Exclamation, 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 end quote. <laughs> Listen, y'all, I'm feeling this brother right now. I'm feeling this brother. Now, what does he read? He says, and he, he continues, the source from which our miseries are derived and on which I shall commit, I shall not combine in one, but shall be shall put, but shall put them under distinct heads and expose them in their turn, in doing which keeping truth on my side and not departing from the strictest rule of morality, I shall endeavor to penetrate, search out, and lay them upon for your inspection. If you cannot or will not. Profit by them, I shall have done my duty to you, my country, and my Yah. David Walker, The Appeal, 1829. That brother went off. That brother went off. Now, after reading this, now this is just the opening of this appeal. Can you see why the first thing they did to the slaves once the rebellion was squashed, was to outlaw reading and writing? Okay? To outlaw reading. And if you can't read, you can't write. Now think about it. We never heard of David Walker. Yet, from my understanding, the educational system was well funded by the richest man on the planet. You know what I'm saying? They love Booker T. Washington. They love Booker T. Washington. Now, David Walker identified us as a CDIO. You can see this just from the opening of his uh, preamble. And I'm going to read another statement where I can prove to you that he's seen us as a CDIO. Now, I'm going to go read some more David David Walker. Now, what does uh, David Walker say here? It says... Uh, <clears throat> Quote, it is expected that all colored men, women, and children, we are not too deceitful, abject, and servile to resist the cruelties and murders inflicted upon us by the white slaveholders, our enemies by nature. Hear that? 
our enemies by nature. Okay? Enmity. Understand. Let me continue. Of every nation, language, and tongue under heaven will try to produce a copy of this appeal and read it or get someone to read it to them for it is designed more particularly for them. Let them remember that through our cruel oppressors and murderers may, if possible, treat us more cruel as Pharaoh did the children of Israel. Better stated, the children of Yaakov. Yet, the God of the Ethiopians has been pleased to hear our moans and consequent of oppression and the day of our redemption from abject wretchedness draw near. Then we shall be enabled in the most extended sense of the word to stretch forth our hands to the Most High. Ayah, But there must be a willingness on our part, for Ayah to do these things for us, for we may be assured that he will not take us by the hair of our head against our will and desire and drag us from our very mean, low, and abject condition. End quote. Okay, now, of course I added the name Ayah instead of Lord and God, because, um, David uh, uh, Wilcott didn't didn't know that yet. He didn't understand how deep this deception went. So I added that. But now, did you hear uh, what he says? He says, in the beginning, he goes, inflicted upon us by the white slaveholders are enemies by nature. Now understand, this is, this is referring to Genesis 3.15. Now, what does he say about the ending? Ending, He says, Well, we shall be enabled in the most extended sense of the word to stretch forth our hands to Ayah, our Yah. But there must be a willingness on our part for Ayah to do these things for us, for we have be assured that he will not take us by the hairs of our head against our will and desire and drag us for our very mean, low, abject condition. Where is this from? Well, let's go to Second Chronicles 7.14. What does it say? Second Chronicles 7.14. Now, I read this all the time during, my, uh, during our Hebrew council meetings. Okay? And it says, I quote, If my people which are called by my name shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. Now, I wonder why I never heard of David Walker. Like I said, we know more about Nat Turner than we do David Walker. And I think I know why. I think I know why. Now, um, during the the, uh, conclusion of this broadcast, you're going to know why, too. Now, I'm going to play to you, we're going to get into Nat Turner, and I'm going to play to you um, an audio file. And this audio file is going to explain Nat Turner. And then after this explains to you Nat Turner, and then I'm going to explain to you what this really means. 
Okay, here we go. There is a sense of a providential journey in the African-American experience from the beginning of the cotton gin as a method of, of expanding slavery and creating havoc in black life through the separation of families, through this incessant labor, uh, which seems to be able to go on in perpetuity. For African Americans, it represents a period when their idea of providence is that this is not pleasing in the sight of God. Though black slaves made up only a small fraction of American Christians in the early 19th century, many who converted seized eagerly on the idea of divine retribution. One was a slave preacher named Nat Turner. Turner's actions in the summer of 1831 would force America to face its deepest fears and help a mounting abolitionist movement gain the attention of the nation. While laboring in the field, I discovered drops of blood on the corn, as though it were dew from heaven. And as the blood of Christ had been shed on this earth and had ascended to heaven for the salvation of sinners, it was plain to me that the Savior was about to lay down the yoke he had borne for the sins of men. And the great day of judgment was at hand. Nat Turner. God in the Old Testament often worked through acts of violence and often protected the Israelites through acts of violence. And it was in that tradition that Nat Turner situated himself. He was an avenging Messiah who had come to save his people from the sinfulness of the slaveholding South. Nat Turner was born in the year 1800, the week before Gabriel was hanged. In 1825, Turner voluntarily returned to bondage after successfully making his escape. The spirit had appeared to him, he said, and told him to return to his earthly master. But in 1828, the spirit appeared to him again. heard a loud noise in the heavens, and the Spirit instantly appeared to me and said, The serpent was loosened, and Christ had laid down the yoke he had borne for the sins of men, and that I should take it on and fight against the serpent. For the time was fast approaching, when the first should be last, and the last should be first. And immediately, the seal was removed from my lips, and I communicated the great work laid out for me to do. Nat Turner. Nat Turner confided his intention, he later explained, to four men in whom he had the greatest confidence. It was agreed that they would prepare a dinner, arm themselves, and then begin God's work. The issue here is God made us to be free. God is empowering us to claim this freedom which God has promised to us. And and so what we what we see is that uh with with Nat with Turner, the key concept is deliverance. 
The work of death began on August 21st, 1831, and lasted for 36 hours, as more than 40 slaves joined Turner and his men in open rebellion. In the end, at least 55 white people were dead. An abolitionist newspaper in Boston, The Liberator, reported that whole families had been cut off. Not a mother, not a daughter, not a babe left. Putnam Moore, the young boy who legally owned Nat Turner, was murdered in the bed where he lay sleeping, outside Jerusalem, Virginia. It's horrifying. There were there were young children who were killed. But you can you can feel the rage and you can feel the anger and you can wonder whether slavery ever would have ended without that sort of rage. Nat Turner was hanged and then skinned in 1831. And for the first time, politicians in Virginia seriously considered a plan for abolishing slavery, but couldn't bring themselves to do it. Slavery was the soul of American progress. Without it, many argued, there would be no future. But to the growing abolitionist movement, Turner's Rebellion was the beginning of the end. What we have so long predicted has commenced. The first drops of blood, which are but a prelude, have fallen. The first flash of lightning has been felt. The first wailings of a bereavement, which is to cloak the earth, have broken upon our ears. The Liberator, September 3rd, 1831. Okay, now, keep the statement in mind. What you know about Nat Turner is what they want you to know about Nat Turner. Now, after this topic, I want you to ask yourself this question. Was Nat Turner a rebel or a pawn? I'm going to read a few resources from uh, PBS, Public Broadcasting System, uh, Wikipedia, and I'm also going to read from a pamphlet that was written in um, 1831 or 32. This is after Nat Turner uh, committed all these killings, these murders, this rebellion. Okay, it was 1832. All right. First, I'm going to read from um, PBS, and and it reads, first, it says, who was Nat Turner? Nat Turner was born on October 2nd, 1800, in Southampton County, Virginia, the week before Gabriel was hung. While still a young child, Nat Turner was overheard describing events 
that he that had happened before he was born. This, along with his keen intelligence and other signs, marked him in the eyes of his people as a prophet, intended for some great purpose, a deeply religious man. He therefore studiously avoided mixing in society and wrapped himself in mystery, devoting his time to fasting and praying. End quote. Okay, now, what I'm going to read to you next was taken from a pamphlet written by the lawyer of Nat Turner. His name is Thomas Ruffin Gray. Okay? Now, here's a conversation that happened between Thomas Ruffin Gray and Nat Turner. And this is before Nat Turner's execution on November 11th, uh, 1831. Okay? And it reads, now this is Nat Turner speaking, and it says, I devoted, it goes, I, devoting my time to fasting and prayer, by this time having arrived to man's estate and hearing the scriptures uh, commented on at meetings, I was struck with that particular passage which says, Seek ye the kingdom of heaven, and all things shall be added unto you. Um, this says, I reflected much on this passage, and prayed daily for light on this subject. As I was praying one day at my plu, the Spirit spoke to me, saying, Seek ye the kingdom of heaven, and all things shall be added unto you. End quote. Uh, now, Thomas Ruffin asks Nat Turner a question. He says, what do you mean by the Spirit? Question. And this is Nat Turner answering. He says, the Spirit that spoke to the prophets in former days, I was greatly astonished, and for two years prayed continually whenever my duty would permit. And then again, I heard the same revelation which fully confirmed me in the inspiration, I mean, so uh, confirmed me in the impression that I was ordained for some great purpose in the hands of the Almighty. End quote. Okay? Now, <clears throat> this is taken from a PBS article, all right? And it reads, it says, The next year, okay, following the death of his master, Samuel Turner, Nat was sold to Thomas Moore. Three years later, Nat Turner had another vision. He saw lights in the sky and prayed to find out what they meant. Then, while laboring in the field, I discovered a drop of blood on the corn, as though it was dew from heaven. And I communicated to many both white and black in the neighborhood and then found uh, and then I found on the leaves and the woods hieroglyphics characters and numbers which the form of men in different out, uh, different uh, attitudes portrayed in blood and representing the figures I had seen before in the heavens okay he says, I, uh, and again I read here, I found on the leaves in the woods hieroglyphic 
characters and numbers with the forms of men in different aptitudes portrayed in blood and representing the figures I have I had seen before in the heavens. End quote. Okay, now um, this is taken from uh, Thomas Gray's Confession. All right, that one was first from PBS. Now this is taken from Thomas Gray's effect, uh, Confession, and uh, this is Nat Turner confessing, and it reads: He says, "And about this time I had a vision, and I saw." white spirits and black spirits, engaged in battle. And the sun was darkened, and the thunder rolled in heaven, and the blood flowed in streams. And I heard a voice saying, quote, this is the voice speaking now, okay? Such is your luck. Such you are called to see, and let it come rough or smooth. You must surely bear it, end quote. Then he says, I now withdrew myself, as much as my situation would permit, from the intercourse of my fellow servants, for the avoid from the uh, av avoided purpose of serving the spirit more fully, and it appeared to me, and reminded me of the things it had already shown me, and that it would then reveal to me the knowledge of the elements. The revolutions of the planets, the operation of the tides, and the changes of the seasons. After this, revelation in the year 1825, okay, 1825, this is six years prior to the uh, revolt, he goes, and the knowledge of the elements being made known to me, I sought more than ever to obtain true holiness before the great day of judgment should appear. Now, of course, the Great Day of Judgment is six years later, which happened in 1831, August. Okay? Now, the question is this. Was this the Most High speaking to Nat Turner? Okay? Or was it another spirit? Now, we have to keep in mind this was written by a man that didn't really like Nat Turner. Okay, this is his lawyer. Nat Turner just murdered all these people. His lawyer has to represent him because they want to make it seem like it was a fair trial. Okay? Nat Turner uh, is saying this, but we shouldn't be surprised if this uh, confession has some things added to it. So we have to take that into consideration. Okay, but keep this in mind. Nat Turner is telling us that all of this is coming from the spirit. Okay, so is this spirit that is that speaking to Nat Turner? Is this coming from the Most High? Now I'm going to read something again. He says, "This is what the spirit says. Is this coming from the Most High? Yeah. Okay, is it? He goes, such is your luck." Such you are called to see, and let it come rough or smooth, you must surely bear it. Now, hold on now. I want you to place your attention to this word, luck. L-U-C-K. Such is your luck, says this spirit. 
So, what does this word luck? Now, when you look this word luck, word word up, luck, L-U-C-K, is equal to the word uh, fortuna, like fortune, fortuna. Okay. Now, what is fortuna? Fortuna is the Greek god Tyche. Tyche, T-Y-C-H-E, Tyche. Okay, now, what does this uh, Greek god Tyche represent? And it reads, in ancient Greek, city cults, Tyche, meaning luck in Greek, Roman equivalent to Fortuna, was the presiding tutelary deity that governed the fortuna or the fortune and prosperity of a city. Its dynasty, I'm sorry, its destiny increasingly during uh, the Hellenistic period, cities venerated their own specific icons version of Tyche, wearing a mural crown, a crown like the walls of the city. She, as a goddess, she is also the god Isis, or goddess Isis. Her father is the god Zeus. She is goddess of fortune and personification of luck. The personification of luck in Roman religion. She might bring good luck or bad. She could be represented as veiled uh veiled and blind as in modern depictions of justice and came to represent life's capriciousness she was also a goddess of fate now understand that they're associating this god goddess with justice okay the justice system Taiki. Okay, now, think about this now. This is luck. So when someone says to you, good luck, they're actually calling on this goddess, Taiki. That's what luck means. You have to go through the root of the words to understand what this means. Now, I found this out by accident. When I, now, when I read this in, in turn, I said to myself, such is luck. Wait a minute. I know what luck means. So I just looked it up, and now I came with this understanding then you see, wait a minute, Nat Turner was not calling on the Most High. Not when he's not when this thing is saying, such is your luck. Okay, now, we've seen another word. Tutelary. Deity. What is this tutelary deity? It says, a tutelary is a deity or spirit who is a guardian patron or protector of a particular place, geographic feature, person, lineage, nation, culture, or occupation. Both tutelary and tutelar can be used as either a noun or an object, an, ob an adjective. An analogous concept uh, in Christianity is the patron saint or to a lesser degree guardian angel. End quote. Okay, now, if this was the spirit Taiki speaking to Nat Turner, then this would explain a lot. 
Now remember, the Hebrews were overtaken by the Greeks in 191 B.C. Okay? Tyche is a Greek god. The Edomites took over the temple through King Herod. The Edomites became Hellenized. Christianity is Hellenized, which means it is under Greek influence. Now, do you think this spirit was pretending to be from the Most High? Huh? Ask yourself this question. Who created the curse of Ham myth? Now, could this be a request from the children of the serpent to their deity? A request to their goddess of fortune. Think about that now. Now, here's a scenario. What if a what if the fear gripped the usurpers after the Haitian Revolution of eighteen oh four? What if the usurpers prayed to their gods and goddesses to extend the slave trade? What if their request required a sacrifice? Now keep this in mind. Where is Nat Turner located at this time? Okay. Nat Turner is located in Virginia. What's in the state of Virginia? This is the home of the Masonic Order. This is the District of Columbia. Who dwells in the District of Columbia? This is the dwelling place of the kings of the earth. Okay? Look at the, 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 the monuments. Now they're looking at Washington, D.C. They're seeing that it was built by the occult. They're finding out that the, the founding fathers were Masons. This is the state this happened in. Okay? Now, I'm going to read uh, Thomas Gray's Confession. And this is Nat Turner continues. He says, um, And then I began to receive the true knowledge of faith and from the first steps of righteousness until the last. Was I made perfect and the Holy Ghost was with me and said, Behold me as I stand in the heavens. And I looked and saw the forms of men in different attitudes. And there were lights in the sky to which the children of darkness gave other names than what they really were. For they were the lights of the Savior's hand stretched forth from east to west, even as they were extended on the cross on Calvary for the redemption of sinners. End quote. Okay, now. This sounds like the Hellenized form of Christianity, right? Don't it? Now think about this. Would Ayah speak to Nat Turner through a religion that hijacked his people? Okay? Would he speak to Nat Turner through a religion that was hijacked by the enemy? The enemy, through this religion stole the Hebrews and the culture and sold them to the four corners of this world. Now I say this because you have to pay attention to what Nat Turner says. He says, uh, he, he talks about the cross of Calvary. Now how many of you know about the cross of Calvary deception? 
Now, what does Nat Turner say? For they were the lights of the Savior's hand, stretched forth from east to west, even as they were extended on the cross on Calvary for the redemption of sinners. End quote. All right, now keep in mind. All right, now, this could be quoted from Nat Turner, or it could be made up by his lawyer for alternative motives. Okay? Now, what I'm going to do is I'm going to read to you in case those aren't familiar, what the cross of Calvary is and why it's important to understand this deception. All right? Now, but before I do, I'm going to um, play something. All right? And actually, no. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to read this first, and then I'm going to play something. Because... Um, I want to uh, to make sure we get this point, and then I'm going to play something, let that sink in, and then I'm going to come back. I need to take a, a slight break. All right, now, um, the cross of Calvary, and this is what it says. It says, um, <clears throat> this is written, uh, it's called, Jesus Christ May Not Have Died on Cross by Russell Goodman, July 2nd, 2010. Now, this is taken from ABC News, okay? And it says, for 2,000 years, the crucifix has been a potent symbol of both uh, Christ, Jesus Christ's death and Christianity. Now, one Swedish theologian says that despite the crucifix proliferation in art and literature, there is scant evidence in the Bible or other ancient sources to indicate that Christ was killed on a cross. Um, Samuelson, devout devoutly believes the story of Jesus, uh, death and resurrection, but says for generations people have misinterpreted and mistranslated the Greek word uh, staurus to mean crucifix, when really the term just means a suspension device, which might have been anything such as, <laughs> quote, pole or a tree trunk. End quote. Uh, the earliest version of the New Testament were written in Greek. Then he says, if you close, if you uh, choose to just read the text and ignore the art and theology, there is quite a small amount of information about the crucifixion. Jesus, the Bible says, uh, Jesus, the Bible says, carried something called a uh, strarus out to Calvary. A staurus out to Calvary. Everyone thought it meant cross, but it does not only mean cross. We cannot say every instant of this noun, uh, staurus, refers to a cross. Samuelson said, suspension device, uh, basically tall poles or pikes, were uh, routinely used in the ancient world by the Romans and their contemporaries both as execution devices and for displaying the bodies of executed criminals and enemies as a public warning, end quote. Now, I chose to use uh, this ABC News article to demonstrate how easy it is to find this information on the web now. I mean, it's easy to find this out now. You just have to look for it. 
Now, if this information is this easy to find today, then would Nat Turner, why would Nat Turner use this statement about the cross? I mean, it's easy to find it now. They knew that that cross was could have meant, meant pole and pike and stuff, right? Now, think about this statement. It says, it says, for they were the lights of the Savior's hand stretched forth from east to west, even as they were extended on the cross on Calvary for the redemption of sinners. Now, if Nat Turner was speaking to the spirit of the Comforter, ayah, Yahushua, remember Yahushua, the Comforter, if he was speaking to the Comforter, now wouldn't the spirit, Yahushua, know if he was hung on a cross or what they, they call here a uh, sarus, a trunk. He ain't going to stretch his hand forth if he's on the trunk. Now, somebody here is being deceptive. deceptive. Is it uh, Nat Turner? Or it could be Thomas Ruffin Gray. Or it could be that Nat Turner is speaking to a lying spirit. Okay? Now, let that sink in. I'm going to play something. All right? And then I'm going to uh, continue with Nat Turner. And I'm going to take a quick break. And I'll be right back. Ray light morning fire lynchet. <laughs> yes, the pain in dreaming comes again. Race pain. People are people are people everywhere. Yeah, ooh, 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 yeah, ooh, 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 yeah. Are people, yes, people, every people, most people, ooh, 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 yeah, ooh, 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 most people in pain. Yes, the pain and pain today. Oh, wow, oh, wow, it must be the devil. Oh wow, oh wow, it must be the devil, it must be the devil, it must be the devil, oh wow, oh wow, yeah, devil, yeah, devil, oh wow, must be the devil, must be the devil, must is, must is, must is, must is be the devil, it can't be Rockefeller, it can't be him, no Lord, it can't be DuPont, no Lord, can't be, no Lord, no way, no way, no sir, no way, Jose, can't be them rich folks, they's good to us, 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 I know the master told me so, I seated on channel 7, I seated on channel 9, I seated on channel 4 and 2 and 5, the rich Folks, good to us, poor folks saying shit. Hallelujah, hallelujah. Oh wow, oh wow. Everything gonna be different after we die. We ain't gonna be hungry, ain't gonna be pain, ain't gonna be suffering, won't go through this again after we die. After we die, oh wow, oh wow, wow. After we die, it's all gonna be good. Have all the money we need after we die. Have all the food we need after we die. Have a nice house like the rich folks after we die. After we die, after we die, we can live like Reverend Ike after we die. Hallelujah, hallelujah. Must be the devil. It ain't capitalism, it ain't capitalism, it ain't capitalism. No, it ain't that. Jimmy Carter wouldn't lie. Life's unfair, but it ain't capitalism. Must be the devil. Oh wow, it ain't the police. Jimmy Carter wouldn't lie. You know Rosalind wouldn't or Lillian. His drunken racist brother ain't no reflection on Jimmy. Must be the devil got him, I tell you. The devil killed Malcolm and Dr. King, too. Even killed both Kennedys and Pablo Neruda. Overthrew Allende's government. Killed Lumumba and is negotiating with Step and Fetchit. Sleeping, eating Birmingham over there in Salisbury. Going under the name of Ian Smith. Must be the devil. It can't be Foster. It can't be apartheid. It can't be imperialism. Jimmy Carter wouldn't lie. Then you hear him saying his State of the Union message. I swear on Rosalind's face-lifted catatonia. I wouldn't lie. Nixon lied. 
Haldeman lied, Dean lied, Hoover lied, Hoover sucked too, but Jimmy don't. Jimmy wouldn't. Jimmy ain't lying. It must be the devil. It must be the devil. Put your money on the plate. It must be the devil. In heaven, we'll all be straight. It can't be Rockefeller. He gave Amos Poot Booty a scholarship to Behavior Modification University, and Genevieve Almost White works for his foundation. It must be niggas. It can't be Mellon. He gave Winky Suckass a fellowship in his bank, put him in charge of closing out mortgages in the low-life Pittsburgh Hill nigger section. It can't be him. Yes, sir. 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 Put your money in the plate. Don't be late. Don't have to wait. You're going to be in heaven after you die. You're going to get all you need once you're gone. Yes, sir. I heard it on the Jeffersons. I heard it on the rookies. I swallowed it whole on roots. Wasn't it nice? Wasn't it nice? Slavery was so cool, and all you had to do was wear derbies and vests and train chickens and buy your way free if you had a mind to? Must be the devil. It wasn't the white folks, them lazy niggas, chained they self and threw their own black asses in the bottom of the boat. Well, now that you mention it, there was a certain king-ass black Uwasi to help throw your ass in the bottom of the boat, your mama, your wife, and you never see them no more. It must have been the devil. Give me your money. Put your money in this plate. Heaven will be here soon. You just got to die. Just got to stop living. Close your eyes, stop breathing, and bam heaven be here. You have all of what you need, bam all of a sudden, heaven be here. You have all of what you need, that assembly line you work on will dissolve in thin air. Oh, wow, wow, oh, wow, wow, just gotta die, just gotta die. This old world ain't nothing, must be the devil got you thinking so. It can't be Rockefeller, it can't be Morgan, it can't be capitalism, it can't be national oppression. Oh, wow, no way, now go back to work and cool it. Go back to work and lay back just a little while longer till you pass. It's all going to be all right. Once you're gone, give me that last bit of silver you got stashed there, sister. Give me that dust now, brother man. It'll be okay on the other side. Your soul be clean, be washed pure white. Yes, yes, yes. Oh, wow. Now go back to work. Go to sleep. Yes, go to sleep. Go back to work. Yes. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. Yes. Yes. Amen. Okay, welcome back. Welcome back. Now, what I'm going to read to you is um, Nat Turner speaking again, and um, this is um, what he says, and this is taken once again from Nat Turner's confession, okay, and Nat Turner speaking, and it reads, and I wondered greatly at these miracles and prayed to be informed of a certainty of the meaning thereof, and shortly afterwards, while laboring in the field, I discovered drops of corn, I'm sorry, drops of blood on the corn, as though it was drew, it were drew from heaven, and I communicated it to many, both white and black, in the neighborhood, and then found on the leaves and the woods hieroglyphics, characters, and numbers which the form of men in different attitudes portrayed in blood and representing the figures I had seen before in the heavens. And now the Holy Ghost had revealed itself to me and made plain the miracles 
it had shown me, for as the blood of Christ had been shed on this earth and had ascended to heaven for the salvation of sinners, and was now returning to earth again in the form of dew, and as the leaves on the trees bore the impressions of the figures I had I had seen in the heavens, it was plain to me that the Savior was about to lay down the yoke he had borne for the sins of man, and the great day of judgment was at hand. Unquote. Okay. This is Nat Turner speaking, right? It continues. Uh, and this time, I told these things to a white man. Ethaldred, his name is uh, Ethaldred T. Uh, Brentley, on whom it had a wonderful effect, and he ceased from his wickedness and was attacked immediately with a uh, cutaneous eruption, and blood oozed from the pores of his skin. And after praying and fasting nine days, now keep this in mind now, he says nine days he was healed, and uh, the Spirit appeared to me again and said, As the Savior had been baptized, so should we uh, be also. And when the white people would not let us be baptized by their church, Okay, they wouldn't let us be baptized by the church. We went down into the water together in the sight of many who reviled us and were baptized by the Spirit. After this, I rejoiced greatly and gave thanks to God. And on the 12th of May, 1828, I heard a loud voice, I mean a loud noise in the heavens, and the Spirit instantly appeared. To me and said, the serpent was loosened, and Christ had laid down the yoke he had borne for the sins of men, and that I should take it on and fight against the serpent. For the time was fast approaching, when the first should be last, and the last should be first. Okay? Now, did you notice the number nine? The hieroglyphic characters and the occult numbers. Did you notice that? Now, if you're paying attention, all this is sounding more and more like the occult. Sounding like Freemasonry. Now remember, where's Nat Turner? He's in Virginia, home of the occult. Okay? Now what does it say? It says, after praying and fasting nine days, he was healed. And the Spirit appeared to me and said, As the Savior had been baptized, so should we be also. Alright? Now think about the Hellenization. Think about the occult. Think about this number nine. How many uh, uh, priests were there in, in the, uh, that, that created the, um, the Sanhedrin? Um, 72, right? 71, then you have the other one. That's, not, that's 7 plus 2 is 9. Then you have the uh, 72 um, priests in the 72 days. That's 7, 8, 9. That's 9. Then you have uh, 18, 6, 6, you know what I'm saying? So whenever we see this number 9, we have to understand that the occult are associating it with this Kabbalah. Okay? 
have to pay attention because there's subtle, subtle things that they put in here that we have to understand. Okay, now, after this, what happens? Uh, Thomas Ruffin Gray, he asks Nat Turner a question. He says, do you not find yourself mistaken now? This is after, you know, the things that he's done. And Nat Turner says, was not Christ crucified? And by signs in heavens that it would make known to me when I should uh, commence the great work? And until the first sign appeared, I should conceal it for the knowledge of men. And on the appearance of the sign, the, the eclipse of the sun last February, he's like talking about this. And that's the conversation. Now, um, I'm going to put on the website uh, what he's talking about. What he's saying is that there was an eclipse on the, the 12th of February, 1831. Now, this isn't a, a, an event that happened. So now you can actually match to, well, Turner was actually speaking of this. So this actually happened because we can actually see that there was an eclipse this time, right? It was a solar eclipse. He goes, now he goes, uh, the sign, the eclipse of the sun last February, I should rise in a, and prepare myself and slay my enemies with their own weapons. And immediately on the sign appearing in the heavens, the seal was removed from my lips, and I communicated the great work laid out for me to do uh, to to four in whom I had the greatest confidence. He's talking about these four people. One of the name is uh, Henry, Hark, Nielsen, and Sam. It was intended by us to have begin the work of death on the fourth of July last uh, on the fourth of July. Then he goes uh, last many. Uh, were the plans form, formed and rejected by us, and it affected my mind to such a degree that I fell sick, and the time passed without our coming to any determination how to commence, still forming new schemes and rejecting them when the sign appeared again, which determined me not to wait longer. Okay? End quote. Now, keep this in mind. The Illuminati, they like to work in exact times and dates. Okay? They like times and dates. If, um, if you, now, like I said, when you look at 1831, February 12th, you notice that there was a, a solar eclipse on this date. And also, when he mentioned that he was supposed to, to be the, do the plan on July 4th. Now, this is a, an Illuminati holiday. Now, thank goodness he didn't do it on the July 4th, because this would celebrate the 4th of July, and it would also continually remember, this would be a remembrance of the Nat Turner revolt. And every year, there would be more fear strike, struck into the, the hearts of, uh, of white people. 4th of July, oh, Nat Turner, Nat Turner Rebellion, Nat Turner Rebellion. July 4th, the freedom of the United States and the Nat Turner Rebellion. You know what I'm saying? And I and understand, like, the July 4th, this is what David uh, Walker was speaking about, the hypocrisy. So now we have David Walker and being uh, dying one year prior to Nat Turner's rebellion. David Walker is speaking of July 4th as a, Hippocratic, a, a, a hypocrisy of the, the founding fathers. But now this... Spirit wants Nat Turner to commit commit all these murder on the uh, 4th of July. Okay? Okay, now, 
this this day, the Fourth of July, is a celebration of the takeover of the United States. Okay, <laughs> this this War of Independence is the takeover. Think about it. You have the Masonic symbolism surrounding this date. You have the dollar bill, the Illuminati sign, the all-seeing eye, the founding fathers, Thomas Jefferson. You have Benjamin Franklin uh, having dead bodies found in his basement. Think about it, y'all. Okay, now, uh, Turner spoke about the final signs that made him go on this killing spree. Okay? Now, we're going to read something. We're going to read something from another source. Okay? And we're going to put something together here. And I'm going to show you how this relates. Now, he says here, it says, On August 13, there was an, an atmospheric disturbance in which the sun appeared bluish-green. This was the final sign, and a week later, on August 21st, Turner and six of his men met in the woods to eat a dinner and make their plans. So what was this dinner? Okay, and it reads, At two o'clock that morning, they set out, and the Travis household, where they killed, uh, they set out to the Travis household, where they killed the entire family as they, they, they lie sleeping. They continued on from house to house, killing all of the white people they encountered. Turner's force eventually consisted of more than 40 slaves, most on horseback, end quote. Okay, now, I, I, I want to lead you to eat a dinner. This is tell you about the accounts. They actually had a dinner in August. Now, listen to this, okay? Now, this is... uh. Uh, Nat Turner's Revolt, 1831, Rebellion in Response in Southampton County, Virginia, by Patrick H. Breen. And his, this is called The First Blood, and it reads, On the morning of Sunday, 21st August, Henry Hank Nielsen Sam, Will, and Jack met at as planned as Cabin Pond as they prepared the pork dinner and drank Henry's brandy. The four uh, charter members of the revolt began explaining to the new recruits their plans to rise and kill all the white people, end quote. I'm going to explain why I read that after I read this one. Now listen to this. This is from the Haitian Revolution of 1791 through 1803, and this is written by Bob uh, Corbett. And it says, This event was a patou, voodoo service, on the evening of Sunday, August 14th, Duty uh, Bauchman, a human and practitioner of the Patwu Voodoo cult, held a service at uh, Boyce Cayman. A woman at the service was possessed by Ugum, the voodoo warrior spirit. She sacrificed a black pig and, speaking the voice of the spirit, named those who were to lead the slaves at Maroons uh, to revolt and seek a stark justice from their white oppressors, end quote. Okay, now, <laughs> what I'm going to do is I'm going to show you the similarities, similarities between Turner, Nat Turner's revolt and the Haitian revolts, okay? Now, listen to this. The Haitian revolts, it says... They took place in August. If you're reading this, reading this article, it took place in August because this was August 14th. Now, this fell on a Sunday, all right, 
what did she do? She called upon the spirit. All right. Now, she's a female. So was it a feminine spirit? I don't know. But she called upon this spirit. All right. Now, what happened? They had a ritual which involved a pig. After they had the ritual, the slaves revolted. And what was their goal? To kill as many white people as possible. Right. Now, let's look at the Nat Turner's revolt. It also took place in August, right, because it was August 21st. This also fell on a Sunday, okay? He also communicated with a spirit. Now, if it's the spirit of luck, okay, then it's the spirit of fortune, which is a feminine spirit also, okay? Now, what did they have for dinner? They prepared a pork meal, all right? So, they're making an association with this Haitian if they wrote this. They wanted to make sure that there was pork involved, right? What happened? There was the slaves that were speaking, and they were, they, were, they were speaking about a revolt. And what was their goal? To kill as many white slaveholders as possible. All right? Now, do you still think that the Most High told uh, Nat Turner to, to uprise to, to free the slaves? Okay? Now, this is more taken from uh, Nat Turner's confession. Now, this is uh, Nat Turner speaking, and it says, By about midday on August 22nd, Turner decided to march towards Jerusalem. <laughs> Think of that name. The name is Jerusalem. Nat Turner to, more, uh, to march towards Jerusalem, the closest town. By then, word of the rebellion had gotten out to the whites, confronted by a group of militia. The rebels scattered, and Turner's forces became disorganized. After spending the night near some slave cabins, Turner and his men attempted to attack another house but were repulsed. Several of the rebels were captured. The remaining force then met the state and federal troops in final, in, uh, in final skirmish in which one slave was killed and many escaped, including Turner. In the end, the rebels had stabbed, shot, and clubbed at least 55 white people to death. Okay? End quote. Now, we have to look at what's going on here. Now, this town, remember, the town was called Jerusalem there in Virginia. Now, one, one interesting fact to note here is that Virginia was the largest home of uh, the Jews outside of um, Europe, anywhere in the world. And most of these Jews were Freemasons. Most of them were Freemasons. This is a document. I'm just telling you fact here. All right? Because the town that they were marching towards is named Jerusalem. Okay? Would this, could this be the largest area of Jews at that time? I don't know. But we know whenever you see uh, Jewish names, it's associated in honor of the, the Jews that live in this town. So, does this have anything to do with Nat Turner's rebellion? Well, According to um, uh, the uh, Secret Relationships Between Black and Jews, the book two, it talks about how the uh, slave trade was continuing. No, I'm not going to get into that now because I'm going to get into that more later because it talks about the cotton gin and the, the expansion of the slave trade. Okay. All right. Now, <clears throat> um. I advise you to read uh, the whole article on the Nat Turner Confession. I was just bringing you pieces of it. And if when you read the whole article, you get the full magnitude of actually what happened. Okay, 
Now, Nat Turner and these people, they were cutting the throats of children and women. They were chopping people with axes. They were decapitating people. They were shooting them in the head. It was brutal. Okay? Now, many of us felt that, you know, many of us feel they say, hey, these white people, these slaveholders, these slave masters, they did worse to us. Okay? They were... They were hanging us. They were they were whipping us. They were raping our women. They were throwing our babies to the alligators. I mean, they did far worse than what Nat Turner did in these few hours. Okay, and actually it was 36 hours. That's another one. 36, 6, 7, 8, 9. There's another 9 again. He was killing for 36 hours. You know, anyway, that's another association with that 9 there. Okay, but now, we, we hear that he's killing... And many, many were like, you know, this is justice. This is like poetic justice because what you've done to others, now we do it to you, right? But now, we think that way, but the question remains. Was this of the most high ayah or was it not? Okay? Was it of the most high ayah or was it not? Now, let's take our minds back to uh, David Walker. Okay? Because we think that we were told that this uprising was going to start an uprising all over the United States. This is, what, this is what Nat Turner was told. This is going to start an uprising all over the United States, and this will free the slaves, right? Nat Turner believed this. He goes, okay, now it's time for me to free the slaves. This is the, going to be the effect, all right? Nat Turner thought he was going to be able to free the slaves. Now, this is something from David Walker. What does it say? It says, <clears throat> Should white people should uh white persons be thanked for granting freedom to some slaves question? No, said Walker. Whites gave nothing to blacks upon manumission except the right to exist. I'm sorry, the right to not the right to exist, the right to exercise the liberty they had immorally prevented them from so doing in the past. They were not giving blacks a gift, but rather returning what they had stolen from them. And, yeah. To pay respect to whites as the source of freedom was thus to blaspheme, yeah, by, by denying that he was the source of all virtue and the only one with whom one was justified in having a relationship of obligation and debt. David Walker, True Rebellion. Now, this was written by a free man named David Walker. David Walker was conveniently killed one year before the Nat Turner Rebellion. Okay? The point that Walker was making is that no man can save us. No man can give us our freedom. Why? Because we are made free. Because it is a virtue of the creator of the universe. It is a virtue of Ayah that all men be free. The source of freedom comes from the Most High Ayah, not man. Okay? Now, in saying this, Before I found uh, Nat Turner's confession, before I found this document, 
I was convinced that Nat Turner was reading from the Bible and he got inspired from the Most High. I thought he noticed in this book, he said, look, he actually seen that he was a Hebrew. Okay. This was an inspiration of the Most High. And then he went off because I, I seen the words like the serpent. He saw the serpent should be loose. And I was like, yeah, that's the serpent on our neck. And that turn was like, I'm going to loose this serpent. And he just went off, right? But then I thought about it. I said, well, did it work? Did the serpent take his foot off our neck after Nat Turner went off? Did Nat Turner free the slaves? Did he free the slaves or did he create a new improved form of slavery? Now we have to keep this in mind. We may not know who we are, but they do. Okay? They do. They knew that Nat Turner was a Hebrew. They knew he was of the curses. You can tell by the way they used the word serpent. You know, the serpent. They called themselves the serpent. That being that was talking to him called himself the serpent. <laughs> he called the white people in the, in the land the serpent. Okay? They identified the enemy as the serpent, the oppressor. Now, take a look at this uh, the story. When you look at the, the story, if you look at it in, in Wikipedia, they actually have a link in Wikipedia. And guess where they link to? And it reads, it says, Serpent is a term used to translate a variety of words in the Hebrew Bible, the most common being Hebrew, Nahish, generic word for snake. The most famous Biblical serpent is the talking snake in the Garden of Eden who tempts Eve to eat the fruit of the tree of knowledge and denies that death will be a result. The serpent has the ability to speak and to reason and is identified with the wisdom of this world. Now, the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. Genesis 3.1. Okay? And what does it read in Genesis 3.1? It says, Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the which Yahuwah, Yah, hath made. And he said unto woman, Ye, yea, hath Ayah said ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden? Question. Now, if, uh, if they knew who the serpent is, then they know who the enemy of the serpent is. Okay, if they know who the serpent is, then they know who the enemy of the serpent is. Okay, now, so what was the aftermath after Nat Turner's uprising? Did it glorify the Most High? Yes or no? Well, let's see. Who actually benefited from Nat Turner's rebellion? Uh, and it reads, it says, Nat Turner's rebellion set off a reign of terror for all blacks in the area as state and federal troops swept through, killing as many blacks as 200. Okay? As many as 200 blacks were killed. To avoid uh, a future uprising, new codes, they call it new slave codes, were enacted, outlawing the education of slaves and putting strict controls on their movements. End quote. Okay, now, Nat Turner was told that this uprising would inspire mass uprising all over the South and free the slaves from the serpents. But what happened? 
over 3,000 members of the state militia were sent to deal with the Turner's Rebellion. And they were soon defeated in retaliation. More than a hundred innocent slaves were killed. Turner went into hiding, but was captured six weeks later. Now, Turner was skinned alive. He was skinned alive. He was hung. He was executed on the 11th of November, 1831. Now, this created a paranoid America. And then this made Nat Turner the paradigm of the Black Messiah. He is the paradigm of the Black Messiah. And what is that? What did the paradigm of the Black Messiah do? They said this created. They said, okay, the the uh, uh, the, the CIA and the FBI created CoinTelPro. They're like, we don't want to have another Nat Turner on our hands, do we? Okay, this created the FBI's obsession with keeping the keeping black people down at the bottom of the barrel, making sure we have no power. Now let's take a look at a few laws that that uh, were passed. Because of this this uh, rebellion, and it reads, nevertheless, fears of repetition of the Nat Turner's revolt polarized moderates and slave owners across the South. Municipalities across the region instituted repressive policies against blacks. Rights were taken away from those who were free. The freedoms of all black people in Virginia were tightly curtailed. Socially, the uprisings discouraged whites questioning the slave system from the perspective that such discussions might encourage similar slave revolts. Now, keep this in mind. Every time there's a slave uprising, uh, something like this happens. It becomes a living hell for those that remain. And you know, I have to you know keep in mind that Nat Turner wasn't the first slave uprising. They had revolts from 1939. They had 1920. They had the, the Gabriel. That's when they said he was hung one year before Gabriel because before that Gabriel revolted. That's what they were speaking about. But every time that there's a revolt, they create restrictions that we can't read. Now here's uh, in in 1739. There's another slave revolt. It says. Uh, the 1739 Rebellion. The Comprehensive Negro Act of 1740, passed in South Carolina, made it illegal for slaves to move abroad, assemble in groups, raise food, earn money, and learn to read. English addition, uh, to, I'm sorry, learn to read English. Additionally, owners were permitted to kill rebellious slaves if necessary. Okay, they're allowed to kill rebellious slaves if necessary. Then it says, manumission, manumission had decreased by 1810. The shift away from tobacco had made owning slaves in the Upper South an excess to the planter's need, so they started to hire out slaves. Okay. Now, this is 1740, now that they had that, they <clears throat> passed the law, the people couldn't read, but then after a while, things started to calm down, right? They had the revolt, white people were scared, they started to release the slaves, uh, now the tobacco trade is being hindered by this, 
Okay, I'm going to keep reading. Okay. Uh, <clears throat> okay, now I'll read that later, but I'm going to get into that later. Okay. But you have to understand that um, this manumission, when they talk about manumission, this is the act of freeing a slave. See, what happened was the, the owner would grow old and the owner would die. Okay, so after the owner died, all his property that wasn't inherited would be released. So the slave would be released because he was considered property. And now the free slave would leave and go up north. Now, but what happened is after Nat Turner, Turner's rebellion, this is now illegal. But before Nat Turner's revolt, slavery started to de decrease. Okay. You had people like David Walker coming on the scene. Then you had the abolition movement telling the South to look. It's illegal in in uh, England already, so now it's time for you to release the slaves. And after a while, they were like, well, look, the tobacco, is, is, we can't do it. Any, we can't get the transatlantic slaves anymore. And the slave trade is starting to decrease because now that business isn't there anymore, right? Now these uh, slaveholders, it's becoming expensive to maintain the slaves. Because Great Britain made it illegal in 1807 after the Haitian Revolution. Okay? Like I said, this disrupted, this disrupted the um, market for tobacco. Alright? Now, uh, I'm going to read in the account. It says, um, With the ending of the transatlantic slave trade of 1807, the invention of the cotton gin, uh-oh, the invention of the cotton gin and opening up of new territories in the Deep South, suddenly there was a growing market for the trading of slaves. Oh no. So now listen what happened. There's an invention now. Now think about it. Slaves are more valuable because it was illegal. Whenever you make something illegal, now it becomes more valuable. Right? It's just like the drug trade. Now it was illegal to ship slaves in. Okay, so now we have uh, a market now. Now, it was illegal, like I said, because of the Haitian Revolution. Now, remember, when the Haitian Revolution happened, this scared Great Britain into the abolishment of the slave trade in 1807. But remember, the East Indian Company was exempt, so they still had a market open of the slave trade. But they kind of made it illegal for certain people, but not for others. Okay? And then what happens after 1807, then we have the invention of this machine called the cotton gin. You can look at it in the uh, blog talk. Uh, you'll see like a picture of the cotton gin. That's, that's why I have that picture there. It's called the cotton gin. Now, this new invention, now when you read about it, this is actually stolen from a black person. Okay, a black man. It's actually stolen from a slave because he was doing the work. He knew how to make it easier, so he invented a way to separate the uh, cotton all right, and the seed. And he called it the, but the Nate took it and they called it the, the cotton gin. Now what did this do? This this allowed the uh, South to turn a profit faster. Because before they had to do it by hand. And he was like, no, I have this comb. It just combs through the, the cotton and it takes the seed out. Now they have more seed and now they had more land. So what did it do? It created a new market and a need for slaves. But what was the problem? The transatlantic slave trade was now illegal. But now the South needed the slaves more than ever. Okay? And it reads, it says, Over the next decade, more than a million slaves would be transported 
to the deep south. Transported from where? From the north. Enforced migration as a result of the domestic slave trade. Now, how did they do that? Well, what happened? It says, uh, now, when Nat Turner created a revolt and he killed over 55 white people, he made it easier for Virginia to pass laws to reinforce slavery. Okay? Now, who benefited? The cotton growers. The cotton growers of the South. Think about it. Okay? Now, look up what this, this uh, cotton gin is and understand what happened. Okay? Now, to put this in, into another uh, another perspective, all right, to put this into another perspective now, we have to see, uh, we see slavery increasing in the South. Okay? Free slaves are now a threat to the economy. Nat Turner was a classic case of problem reaction solution. Nat Turner was like the September 11, the September 11th attacks, okay? His revolt became the excuse to lock down to lock us down. Lock down every free brother out there, sister out there. Okay? What did it do? It took away the little rights we had. It allowed them to keep us in bondage. Okay? Now, just like the September, September 11th attacks. Think about it. Think about the September 11th attacks. Think about the what it did. It created the, the war on terror. Okay? And who did this? The hidden hand. The hidden hand did this, right? It allowed... It allowed the war in Iraq, the war in Afghanistan, the war in, in Pakistan, the war in Philippines, the war in the Horn of Africa, the war in Trans-Sahara, the war in Yemen, the war in Libya. It created the Patriot, TSA groping squads. We got FEMA camps. Okay? It opened up the door for World War Three. You see, this problem reaction solution is not anything new. It's an old trick. But we have to notice who the same old players are. This is the demonic hidden hand of the principalities. This is the magicians of the Kabbalah, the Illuminati, the Freemasons. See? These people aren't even hiding it anymore. We look at Jay-Z and Lady Gaga on there like, like throwing up the daggone demonic signs like the gang signs and stuff. The little 666 symbols. The all-seeing eye. They're not even hiding it anymore. It's the hidden hand. This is the Illuminati. Okay? Now, what happened after the aftermath of the Nat Turner Revolt? And it reads, in the aftermath of Nat Turner's slave revolt, the Virginia General Assembly passed new legislation making it unlawful to teach slaves, free blacks or mulattoes, to read or write. The General Assembly also passed a law restricting all blacks from holding religious meetings without the permission, I'm sorry, without the presence of a licensed white minister. You heard that? From holding meetings without the presence of a, of a licensed white minister. 
Then it says other slaveholdings, uh, other slaveholding states across the South enacted similar laws restricting activities of slaves and free blacks. Okay, now think about this. This was enforced throughout the South. This means that they wanted to keep you as ignorant and as dumb as possible, and they did this legally. It was by law. This happened in Virginia now. Virginia's up, up, up north somewhere. But yet they're doing this down south? Where did this happen? This happened in Virginia, not down south. But yet the south has made all these laws. Are y'all seeing it now? Now think about it. If you were teaching the word without a license, you would be hung. If you had a license, and you were teaching that we were the city Yako. You had an overseer in the church that would kill you by law, legally. We we complain about the Patriot Act. Imagine what they did to us back then, legally, just so they can have free slaves, keep the slave trade going. Now, and it reads, some free blacks chose to move their families north to obtain education for their children. Some individual whites, such as Young uh, teacher named uh, Thomas J. Jackson, better known uh, into history as Stonewell Jackson, and another named Mary Smith Peake, chose to violate the laws and teach slaves to read. Overall, the laws enacted in the aftermath of the Turner Rebellion enforced widespread illiteracy among slaves. It persisted for 35 years. Later, most newly freed slaves and many free blacks in the South were illiterate at the end of the American Civil War. Okay? They were illiterate at the end of the American Civil War. Now, uh, now, one thing they left out in this article what else happened after the American Civil War? What was the most terrible thing that lasted all the way until the 60s? Which brought Martin Luther King and Malcolm X. Jim Crow. Think about it. Nat Turner was fresh in the minds of the Ku Klux Klan. If these slaves are free, then we might have about a, a million Nat Turners on our hands. Let's think about this now. They were like putting on the white sheets, trying to scare us. You know what I'm saying? They made sure that we were still in bondage, even if we were free in 1865. They had us in a bondage of fear. Okay? They had us in a bondage of fear. Okay, now, now I'm going to complete this broadcast. I'm going to complete this, uh, this section on uh, Nat Turner's rebellion. Um... Understand that the result of Nat Turner's rebellion created just a new form of slavery. Now, Nat Turner might have had a, a small um, bit of, of satisfaction in his 36-hour rampage, but those 36 hours now have put over 100 years of oppression on the black man, created more enslavement. It made them justify their treatment. Of the people of color, okay? All right, now um, I'm going to play this, 
and uh, this is uh, Booker T. Washington. This audio file is five minutes long, and uh, I'll be right back. Okay. Of all forms of slavery, there is none that is so harmful and degrading as that form of slavery which tempts one human being to hate another by reason of his race or color. One man cannot hold another man down in a ditch without remaining down in a ditch with him. Booker Taliaferro Washington was born a slave on a farm in rural Virginia. When he was nine, a stranger came to the farm. Some man made a little speech and then read a rather long paper. After the reading, we were told that we were all free and could go when and where we pleased. My mother, who was standing by my side, leaned over and kissed her children while tears of joy ran down her cheeks. She explained to us what it all meant, that this was the day for which she had been so long praying, but fearing that she would never live to see. The year was 1865. Booker and his family soon moved to West Virginia, where he briefly worked as a salt packer and coal miner before attending a new school, which was to become Hampton University. Hampton's founder, Samuel Armstrong, was so impressed with Booker's hard work and scholarship that in 1881, he gave 25-year-old Booker a strong recommendation to become the first principal of the new Tuskegee Normal and Industrial Institute, which would become Tuskegee University. Under Washington's leadership, Tuskegee provided black students with a combination of academic instruction and practical skills, such as carpentry and masonry. No race can prosper till it learns that there is as much dignity in tilling a field as in writing a poem. It is at the bottom of life we must begin, and not at the top. An energetic and powerful speaker, Washington became an important leader in the African-American community during the late 1800s. In his most famous speech, known as the Atlanta Compromise Address, he sought to reconcile both whites and blacks to the social and economic realities of the time. There is no defense or security for any of us except in the highest intelligence and development of all. If anywhere there are efforts tending to curtail the fullest growth of the Negro, let these efforts be turned into stimulating encouraging and making him the most useful and intelligent citizen. Effort or means so invested will pay a thousand percent interest. These efforts will be twice blessed, blessing from him that gives and from him that takes. There is no escape through law of man or God from the inevitable. The laws of changeless justice bind oppressor with oppressed and close as sin and suffering joined, 
we march to fate abreast. Nearly 16 million of hands will aid you in pulling the load upward, or they will pull against you the load downward. We shall constitute one-third and more of the ignorance and crime of the South, or one-third of its intelligence and progress. Following this speech, Washington was increasingly seen as the spokesman for African Americans. His ideas and powerful personality attracted the attention of many well-known politicians and philanthropists, including Andrew Carnegie, Henry Rogers, and John D. Rockefeller. The result was the creation of countless small schools across the South and the continued growth of the Tuskegee University. In 1901, Washington published his autobiography, Up From Slavery. It quickly became an influential bestseller. Later that year, he was invited to the White House as a guest of President Theodore Roosevelt. Booker Telefero Washington. Washington was born into slavery to Jane, an enslaved African-American woman on the boroughs of Plantation in southwest Virginia. She never identified with his white father, said to be a nearby planter. He played no significant role in Washington's life. After his family gained uh, freedom in 1865, his mother took them to West Virginia to join her father. She and the freedman Washington uh, uh, Ferguson was formally married there, and Booker took the surname Washington at school after his stepfather. The youth worked in salt furnaces and coal mines in West Virginia for several years and made his way to East Hampton, uh, East, uh, made his way to the East to Hampton Institute, a school established to educate freedmen where he worked to pay for his studies. Okay. Now, freedmen is a term that was used for, um, it was a term that was used for African Americans that were free. They were called freedmen. Okay. <coughs> Excuse me. Now it says, um, uh, oh, okay, make a point. Now, keep this in mind. Hampton Institute was founded by the American Missionary Association. This is going to mean a lot uh, a little bit later, but keep that in mind. American Missionary Association and the Freedmen's Aid Society. This was created by a. Uh, it was created by the Freedmen's Bureau. Okay. Now the Freedmen's Bureau. This was a United States federal government agency. Okay. Now I want you to ask yourself a question. Knowing what you know now about how the government creates the AMC, and it was a to bring African Americans to Liberia for free labor and all these things. Okay, now keep free labor in mind. Knowing what you know, can we really trust this Freedmen's Bureau that was created by the United States Federal Government Agency? Was it something that was going to benefit the African American, or was it something that was going to benefit the United States of America? So, can we trust the Freedmen's Society. 
Yes or no? Okay. Um, <clears throat> now, <clears throat> here's what it says. It says, um, uh, and it reads, he attended Wayland Seminary in Washington, D.C. in 1878 and left after six months in 1881. The Hampton president, Samuel C. Armstrong, recommended Washington to become the first leader of Tuskegee Institute, the new normal school, uh, Teachers College in Alabama. He headed it for the rest of his life. Okay, now I'm going to read some information about the uh, Westland Seminary, all right, uh, <clears throat> and sorry about that, y'all, Fred. My throat is a little bit stuffed. Now, what does it say? It says, uh, Westland Seminary was the Washington, D.C. School of the National Theological Institute. The institute was established beginning in 1865 by the American Baptist Home Mission Society designed primarily for providing, educating, and training for the African-American freedmen to enter into the ministry. Okay, now, all this is out of Washington, D.C., and it is established by the American Baptist Home Missionary Society. So, what is the American Baptist Home Missionary Society? Okay, and it reads, the Home Mission Society, ABM, ABHMS, itself was organized in 1832. Now, this is one year after uh, Nat Turner went off. This is 1832. They organized this uh, missionary society. And why did they organize society? Because it was illegal for slaves to teach in the, in the, in the ministry now. Because they looked at what Nat Turner did and they were like, okay. We have to make sure that we can control what these Africans say so we never we never have another Nat Turner. You know, that's why what happened with um, Jeremiah Wright, they were like, oh, this is another Nat Turner. It's, it's a pattern. It's a pattern. Okay? Remember, the first episode dealt with Cointel Pro and FBI and, and the rise of the, of the Messiah. This rise of the Messiah started in the 19th century. Okay? Well, let me let me continue reading because I'm I'm going off track here. I'm going too too far ahead of myself. Now it says organized in 1832 to raise support for missionaries in North America. Later, by Dr. Henry Lehman Morehouse, corresponding secretly of A B H M S. Um, I'm sorry, secretly that, that, the wrong word. Corresponding secretary of A B H M S. Took the leading, took the lead in forming the American Baptist Educational Society in its ABES in May 1888 to promote Christian education under auspice in North America. A major achievement of the group was the funding of the University of Chicago in 1890, strongly supported by John D. Rockefeller. Okay, now. Did you hear that name? Okay. John D. Rockefeller. Now, have you ever heard of that phrase, birds of a feather flock together? Hmm? All right, now I'm going to keep reading. Okay. Now, listen to how this circle expands. Okay. It says, <clears throat> in addition, Dr. Morehouse, for whom Morehouse College's name succeeded in engaging Rockefeller, in a major financial support for 
Bacon College, Spielman College, and Black Education in general. So now Rockefeller is supporting, sponsoring Black Education in general. Uh, responsibility for his, uh, historically uh, historically black colleges founded by and for freedmen and women after the Civil War. Okay, now remember. The Freedmen's Bureau was an United States federal government agency. All right. Okay, now we're going to read that again. It says uh, the part about Booker T. He says he attended Wayland Seminary in Washington, D.C. in 1878 and left after six months in 1881. The Hampton president. Samuel C. Armstrong recommended Washington to become the first leader of the Tuskegee Institute. Y'all know Tuskegee Institute. Remember the Tuskegee syphilis experiment? It's the same area, Tuskegee. Now, who was Samuel C. Armstrong? It says uh, Samuel C. Armstrong was an American educator and a commissioner, a commissioned officer in the Union Army during the American Civil War, when Armstrong was assigned to command the USCT, which stands for United States Colored Troops, training was conducted at Camp Staten near Benedict, Maryland. While stationed at Stanton, he established a school to educate the black soldiers, most of whom had no education as slaves. Okay. Now, we're going to keep reading, and it says, um, by late 1865, the American Civil War was over, which ended slavery in the former Confederate states. And slavery, and slavery in the United States had officially ended in the northern and bordered states as well, with the adoption of the 13th Amendment to the United States Constitution. However, known as freedmen, millions, okay, millions of former African American slaves with, uh, were without employable job skills, opportunities, and even illiteracy. Okay, now they make a connection. It says, for example, in Virginia, since the bloody Nat Turner Rebellion in 1831, it had been unlawful to teach a slave to read. All right. Okay, it says, uh, some realize that these newly Freed slaves were still in a battle against ignorance and neglect. Members of the American Baptist Home Mission, Mission Society, the ABHMS, which is sponsored by Rockefeller, proposed a National Theological Institute, NTI, which would educate those wishing to enter into the Baptist missionary. Soon, the proposed mission was expanded to offer courses and programs at college, high school, and even preparatory levels to both men and women. Okay? So basically, uh, think about this. The only education available for the uneducated, ignorant, free slave was the ones controlled by United States government. And who was in charge of it? It was run by a ex-military officer named Samuel C. Armstrong. And all this happened because of the Nat Turner Rebellion of 1831. All right? Now, <clears throat> it gets better. Okay? 
gets a lot better than that. Now listen to this. And it reads, among Hampton's earliest students was Booker T. Washington, who arrived from West Virginia in 1872 at the age of 16. He worked his way through Hampton and then went on to attend Wayland Seminary in Washington, D.C. After graduation, he returned to Hampton and became a teacher. Upon recommendations, upon recommendations, upon recommendations of Samuel C. Armstrong to funder uh, Lewis Adams and others in 1881, Washington was sent to Alabama at age 25 to head another new norm school, okay, normal school. This new institution eventually became Tuskegee University. Embracing much of Armstrong's philosophy, Washington built Tuskegee into a substantial school and became nationally famous as an educator, orator, and fundraiser as well. He collaborated with a philanthropist, Julius Rosenwald, in the early 20th century. Okay? Uh, to create a model for royal black schools, Rosenwald established a fund that uh, matched monies raised by communities to build more than 500 schools for rural black children, mostly in the South. Okay, now, think about this. Booker T. Washington, okay, he went to this brainwashing academy of Hampton to learn a trade. All right, he didn't learn um, the education that we think when we go to school. He went there to learn a trade. After he learned this trade, then he was sent to another school for six months. It was Wayland Seminary. And he was sent there to learn about religion. Okay? Now, with this, with this education, what did he do? He took the philosophy of Samuel Armstrong, and Samuel Armstrong was the United States military. He was an ex-commander in the United States military. Okay? And what did, what, did, what did Armstrong tell Booker T. Washington to do or inspire Bushing Washington to do with his philosophy? Booker T. Washington then built the Tuskegee University. And he built it with the other Armstrong clones, okay, because they built like these magnificent buildings, okay. Now think about this. All of this control of our building, of our freedom now, of our religion, all of this is a result of the Nat Turner Rebellion. Okay, that Napton Rebellion is like that gift that just keeps on giving. Okay, just keeps on giving. Now, there's something in this article that is very important. Okay, it reads, it says, <clears throat> He collaborated with the philanthropist Julius Rosenwald in the early 20th century to create a model for royal black schools. Rosenwald established a fund that matched monies raised by communities to build more than 5,000 schools for royal, uh, royal, royal black children, 
mostly in the South. Okay? Now, at first sight, you would think, wow, this is a great deed, right? But you have to understand the alternative intentions. All right? But before I get into that, we're going to read what the Atlantic Compromise is. All right? Because remember, they got inspired because of the Atlantic Compromise. Now, I'm going to read the Atlantic, the Atlantic Compromise. All right? And remember how it says compromise. Very important to understand this. It says, uh, Washington advocated a go-slow approach. The effect was the many youth in the South had to accept sacrifices of political, uh, a potential political power, civil rights, and higher education. His belief was, the, was that African Americans should consecrate all their energies on industrial education and accumulative of wealth and a conciliation conciliation of the uh, of the South. Washington valued the industrial education as it provided critical skills for the jobs then available to the majority of African Americans at the time. As most lived in the South, which were overwhelmingly rural and agricultural, he thought these skills that would lay the foundation for the creation of stability that the African American community required in order to move forward. He believed that in the long term, blacks would eventually gain full participation in society by showing themselves to be responsible, reliable American citizens. His approach advocated for an initial step towards equal rights rather than fully equal equality under the law. You heard that. It says, equal rights rather than fully equality under the law. So now they don't have to do it under the law. Okay, and it says, he would be, he would be this step that would provide the economic power to back up proof to a deeply prejudiced white America that they were not, in fact, naturally stupid and incompetent. Okay, now, <clears throat> now think about this now. This here that uh, Booker T. Washington is saying, was this really Booker T. Washington speaking, or was this Samuel C. Washington, uh, or Samuel C. Armstrong? Because remember, this is uh, he's 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 telling us the philosophy of Samuel Armstrong. All right, and it reads: Washington uh, was sent to Alabama at age 25 to head another normal school. This new institution eventually became Tuskegee University, embracing much of Armstrong's philosophy. So what was Armstrong's philosophy? Okay. What was Armstrong's philosophy? Okay, now, let's look at the men that embraced Armstrong's philosophy. Who were the other men that embraced Armstrong's philosophy? All right, and it reads, Washington associated himself with the richest and most powerful businessmen and politicians of the era. He was seen as a spokesman for African Americans. He became a conduit for funding educational programs. His contacts included such diverse and well-known personages as Andrew Carnegie, William Howard Taft, John D. Rockefeller, Henry Hustleton Rogers, George Eastman, Julius Rosenwald, Robert Ordon, uh, Collis Potter Huffington, 
and William Henry Baldwin Jr., who, de- who donated large sums of money to agencies such as the uh, Jeans and Slater Funds. Okay, now, just in case you don't realize what's happened, let me go over the names that are Washington's friends. Now, first of all, this is an ex-slave from um, Virginia, okay? He is uneducated, and he goes and gets himself an education, and now he is becoming the head of a university and building these schools for African Americans. Do you mean to tell me all these white people are so happy with this that they are now befriending Washington and giving him all of their money because they love him? No. Why did they do this? Well, let's see. Let's go over the names and uh, find out. It says, um, <clears throat> and here's some names. Uh, Colin Potter Huff- Huntington. Well, who was he? He was the owner of Central and Union Pacific Railroad. Why was he friends of Washington? Slave labor. Okay? Okay? Slave labor. Slave labor. Well, they, they used to call it, they call it free labor back then. Booker T. Washington made him extremely rich. William Henry Baldwin Jr. He owned Long Island Railroad. Why was he friends with Washington, free labor he made him extremely rich. William Howard Taft, 27th President of the United States, also Skull and Bones member. Why? Because he was the best pawn that money can buy. Theodore Teddy Roosevelt, 20th President of the United States. Mason, okay, this guy, friends with Washington. Why? Because he was the best pawn money can buy. Now we have a man by the name of George Easton from Kodak Film Company. This guy owns the, he's the Kodak. Everybody knows about Kodak Film. Why was he friend with Washington? Free labor. He made him extremely rich. Andrew Carnegie. I know everybody knows Andrew Carnegie. What did he own? Carnegie Steel. Carnegie Steel Company. Why is he friends with Washington? Free labor. Washington made him extremely rich. Henry H. Rogers. What did he own? Standard Oil. Why was he friends with Washington? Free labor. Washington made him extremely rich. Julius Rosenwald. Remember this guy that loved Washington so much? Julius Rosenwald. What did he own? Sears and Robux. Why was he friends with Washington? Free labor. Washington made him extremely rich. John D. Rockefeller. Everybody knows about the eugenics program. Everybody knows how John D. Rockefeller was cozy and tight with um, Margaret Singer, the abortion clinics. What did Rockefeller own? Standard Oil. Why was he friends with Washington? Free labor. Washington made him extremely rich. Then we have other people here. Samuel Sachs of Goldman Sachs Investment Banking Company. Why was he friends with Washington? Free labor. Washington made him extremely rich. Henry Goldman of Goldman Sachs Investment Company. So we have we have Samuel Sachs. Now we have Henry Goldman. Okay, that's Goldman and Sachs right there. Both of them. Why was he friends with Washington? Free labor. Washington made him extremely rich. Okay. Now there are more names to add to this list, but for the sake of time, this should make my point. 
these men were not friends with Booker T. Washington because they identified with the struggle of the black man or because they wanted to educate the poor, ignorant slave of the South and save us out of the clutches of Jim Crow. No. They looked at Booker T. Washington as their cash cow. Okay? As free labor. Through Washington, they used free labor to undermine the unions that were in the United States. This is why we get the uh, riots of the 19th and 20th century. All right? Now, everybody knows about the Black Wall Street riot in 1921. All right? The Black Wall Street riot of 1921. That's the most documented. Tulsa, Oklahoma. All right? Now, there's another deception. And this is, um, okay, they used us again with this. And this is, this is why this is documented. So the Most High is like showing us, look at what happened to you. All right? And, and everybody should know this. It was the Tuskegee syphilis experiment. All right? Where was the university? Tuskegee. It's called the Tuskegee syphilis experiment. This went on for over 40 years. Okay, it went on until the 70s. Okay, a whistleblower had to come and stop it in the 70s, and they apologized in the late 90s. Now, where was all the uh, the friends of Washington to speak out in outrage that they were doing this at Tuskegee? Okay, it was done at Tuskegee. Right? Was this not the home of the Tuskegee University where all his friends were there? Where were all Washington's friends? I mean, he made them filthy rich. Where was uh, Huntington, Baldwin, Taft, Roosevelt? Okay, well, okay, they were dead. So we can say, okay, they weren't alive. All right. What about um, the uh, Rosenwald family? What about the Rockefeller family? What about the Goldman family or the Sachs family? They have enough power and influence that they can uh, speak out against this. All right? Now, what about that Tuskegee syphilis experiment? Where did it start? All right? Now, this might shock some, but I'm going to read this. And this is taken from uh, the Rosenwald Fund. It's the Rosenwald Foundation. And it reads, it says, um, the Rosenwald Fund, also known as the Rosenwald Foundation, the Julius Rosenwald Fund, and the Julius Rosenwald Foundation was established in 1917 by Julius Rosenwald and his family for the well-being of mankind. He became interested in social issues, especially education for African Americans, and provided funding through Dr. Booker T. Doctor now, Dr. Booker T. Washington of the Tuskegee Institute, a historically a historically black college, HBCU, prior to funding the fund, unlike other endowed foundations, which were designed to fund themselves in perpetuity, the uh, Roswell Fund was intended to use all of its funds for philanthropic purposes. It donated over $70 million to public schools, mm, nice. colleges and universities, museums, and Jewish charities, and black institutions before funding was completely 
depleted in 1948. Now, all that is wonderful because, you know, these, these things need funding. But always, what is the alternative motive? <clears throat> and it reads, the Rosenwald Fund was also one of the original backers of the Tuskegee Syphilis Study. With support from the Rosenwald Fund, an ambitious program had began to improve the health of African Americans in the United States, Southern States, in 1928. Emphasis was on treating people with syphilis, with syphilis then found at the high rate in poor African American communities. After the stock market crash in 1929, the fund was forced to end its role in the project. Now, this says a lot because when you know about how syphilis attacks the brain and how it, how it it just destroys you and how the elite was actually getting syphilis. Now, how did it get into the African American community? That's the first thing. And then we have the Rosenwell Fund that is doing a study on it in 1928, but they tell us that it started in 19 the experiment started in 1932 and lasted until the 70s. So, did he start it? Did he set the wheel in motion? Now, if Rosenwell, if Rosenwell was the one that started this funding and they started to do to, to outcry against it, they started to say, a whistleblower started to say, look, they're actually doing this for 40 years. Why didn't the Rosenwald family stand up in opposition and say, stop this. This is not what my father intended. You didn't hear nothing. They had to have a whistleblower come out and force the president of the United States of America to apologize to these people for suffering. All right? Now, that precedes the ending of this broadcast. Um, I'm going to take a few calls, and then I'm going to close with uh, Booker T. Washington. I mean, not Booker T. Washington. I'm going to close with the, um, the uh, uh, Frederick Douglass um, in the Frederick Douglass speech and Frederick Douglass speech now understand was an inspiration of David Walker. Okay, David Walker wrote the appeal to the colored people of the world. Okay, now one thing I want to say before going out, I want people to understand that what's happening today in this world is uh, crucial. It's crucial for us to to be alert and studious because and if you think that winning your a right or 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 pushing something that you want can be done through violence, you're sadly mistaken because violence only is a benefit of those that can manipulate that power to their benefit. When Nat Turner rose up against the oppressor with violence and he slit the throat of children and women and, and, um, and, and shot and killed these people, they seen this and they used it for their advantage. Now, for a brief moment, Nat Turner had power to kill 55 people. But the after effects of that took away so much power that he would have never done it if he could have seen the repercussions that would have, would have caused for black people. When Nat Turner rose up, it took away our rights to 
to uh, read. It took away our rights to understand the Most High. We had to have a person in the church that taught us how to read. White per- a white person in the church told us what to believe, pushed us back a hundred years, maybe even two hundred years. Then it allowed them to take control of our labor and make men extremely rich and gave them even more power. And with that power, they're destroying this planet. So if now we think that we can rise up again in violence, they will use their drones, they will use their tear gas, they will use their sound cannons, (laughs) they will use their bullets and guns, FEMA camps, lock us up, and then gain power for another hundred years. Okay? So what is the answer? The answer is to know who you are. Teach who you are to the others out there. Okay? Understand who you are. You are a Hebrew of the seed of Yaakov. David Walker had the solution, the appeal, He said, if you have a declaration of independence, then you have to look at this appeal because we, too, are American citizens. We deserve as much respect as you do. You want to end slavery? Then let's end it in this way. Okay? And he was using the courts to free us. You will never hear about David Walker. They took him out of the schools. All right? They want you to know about Nat Turner. They want you to rise up so they can lock you up. Throw away the key. And then keep this power going for another hundred years. Alright, y'all. I'm going to play um, Frederick uh, Douglass and I'm going to take a few calls. Okay, bye. By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down. Yea, we wept when we remembered Zion. We hanged our harps upon the willows in the midst thereof. For there, they that carried us away captive required of us a song. And they that wasted us required of us mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a strange land. If I forget thee, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget her cunning. If I do not remember thee, let my tongue cleave to the roof of my mouth. Fellow citizens, above your national tumultuous joy, I hear the mournful wail of millions whose chains heavy and grievous yesterday are today rendered more intolerable by the jubilee shouts that reach them. If I do forget, if I do not faithfully remember those bleeding children of sorrow this day, may my right hand forget her cunning and may my tongue cleave to the roof of my mouth. To forget them, to pass lightly over their wrongs, and to chime in with the popular theme 
would be treason most scandalous and shocking and would make me a reproach before God and the world. My subject, then, fellow citizens, is American slavery. I shall see this day and its popular characteristics from the slave's point of view. Standing there, identified with the American bondman, making his wrongs mine, I do not hesitate to declare with all my soul that the character and conduct of this nation never looked blacker to me than on the 4th of July. 